a wise guy, eh? He sure is. He's Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball and a fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 14th. It's show number 26 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with the wise guy, Gene McCaffrey, fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic, discussing how to use the Pythagorean win projection system to find closers with upside. We'll talk about fast fastballs, electric sliders, and other pitches. We'll talk about some possibly sneaky buy-low opportunities. We'll talk about ABBA t-shirts and his boons and banes. We'll have our Market Watch Player News reports, Harold Nichols covering the National League, including Chris Paddock, Corey Seager, and other National League player news, and Jock Thompson will have the report from the American League, including Justin Bohr, Ken Giles, and other American League players. I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about interpreting advanced stats like BABIP, WOBA, and exit velocity. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Cleveland first baseman Bobby Bradley. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at a bunch of showdowns including Chicago right-hander Hugh Darvish in Los Angeles to take on the Dodgers right-handed ace Walker Bueller on Sunday. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about why I fabbed Daniel Norris. It's another Big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The wise guy is in the house. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Gene McCaffrey, fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic. Gene, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, Patrick. Great to be here, as always. How are your teams doing so far this year? <laughs> Not very good. Um, I had a nice start in Tout Wars. I had a nice start in the XFL, and then I've kind of faded. My main event team has been penalized by the fact that my first pick was Jose Ramirez in the 10th spot. Um, and that team has just been a disaster, and I've played it badly, too. I mean, I, am, I picked up, I had to drop a pitcher after one week. I dropped Mike Soroka. I picked up Hunter Pence and dropped him because he wasn't playing. Um, so it's just been one disaster after another, and I'm just trying to get back to respectability. On the other hand, I've been doing well in DFS, so um, you know I'm still not making a ton of money at it, but um, at least I'm being respectable and cashing in about almost 27% of my tournaments, so that's pretty good. So mostly not so great. When you say you're cashing in 27% of tournaments, that is enough to make money, right? Because the the payoffs are bigger. Not really, because oh. you don't really make money until you get into the you know the top echelon of finishing. Um, so, and the way they've they've kind of chinsed out a little bit, you know, and you're not even doubling your money in a lot of cases in the tournaments. You know, you put up ten, you get back fifteen if you if you cash. Um, so. 
it's it's really hard to make money doing that um, unless you hit you know you need really you need a top five finish at some point in the season to to turn a profit and I'm you know I still think it's going to happen um, you know come close several times but you know waiting for that one more home run and it hasn't happened so but I think it will so. On the brighter side, you celebrated a birthday recently, got some cool band t-shirts from your family, and uh, one maybe not so cool, but hip in its own way. How did that all work? Well, yeah, I needed t-shirts desperately, and uh, so my wife passed the word to my nine children, and they responded. And um, so I got about 12 t-shirts for uh, for my birthday, and, you know, Sex Pistols, Ramones, Roxy Music, you know, all my favorite bands. Of course, I really have dolls. Um, but my wife bought me an ABBA t-shirt and, um, because she knows that that's my guilty pleasure. And so, uh, that was the first one I wore. And, um, I proudly walked around Fort Collins with an ABBA t-shirt and people looked at me like I was extremely unhip, but I know better, um, because I can hear the drums, Fernando. Well, I'm up here in Waterloo, so I can empathize. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Yeah, I really only like three Ava songs, Waterloo, SOS, and um, Fernando, Um, but um, I do like those songs, so it is my guilty pleasure, I I admit it. Not Dancing Queen? Eh, kind of cheesy, you know, I mean, even I have a, who love and appreciate cheese, have a sort of cheese boundary, and I think that crosses it, but... I could be wrong, you know, maybe in the future I'll come to appreciate it for the great piece of work that it is. <laughs> oh boy, how long have you been with The Athletic now? Um, since February, and that seems to be going really well. I'm getting a ton of really good responses and um, Twitter stuff. I had my first, gee, I wish you were on my team the other day, so I think that's a sort of validation, don't you think, you know? Yeah, I too could have dropped Mike Soroka. I'm sorry, but I hate the public. Um, most of the comments are great, and most of the people are really intelligent. And even when they criticize, you know, it's on a good, it's on a good, rational, logical basis. And uh, but it only takes like one or two jackasses to ruin my day. I have to admit it. I have to thicken my skin up. The public can is mostly supportive with those one or two uh, naysayers, and it seems like that's the the whole issue with social media in a nutshell, right? And most of the people are civil and collegial and have interesting things to say and are generally pretty supportive, and then there's that one fly in the ointment, and it kind of makes ruins the whole ointment. Yeah, I mean, I just, I guess that's the way it is. That's the way of the world, and we have to get used to it and thicken up our skins. And I, I also think that if somebody doesn't present, um, I'm entitled to ignore someone who doesn't present a cogent argument. Um, don't you think? Um, you know, it's, I want to be civil and I want to be responsive. Um, but if you're just being abusive, then the hell with you. You know, I'm not going to even answer you. Yeah, and uh, I make liberal use of the blocking technologies that they allow, you know, the, on Twitter especially, you can just block people who are re- relentlessly negative. And as you said, I'll listen to anybody who's got an argument against what I'm saying as long as the argument ha- has some sort of structure and makes some sort of sense. But basically most of it's just ad hominem or, or based on just a deliberate misreading of what you're saying. And after a while you just have to say, you know what, y- you and I are just not going to get along, so let's just cut our ties here and and be done with you. Yep, I think that's sensible. Good way to look at it. 
You wrapped up an article in The uh, Athletic earlier this year by noting that the reduction in innings pitched for many starting pitchers just isn't working, and I was wondering what you meant by that. Well, I mean, bottom line, runs are up. Um, strand rate is down. You know, when, when Baseball HQ first introduced strand rate, if my memory serves me correctly, um, 75% was the major league strand rate. Now it's down to 726 um, and I think it's going to go lower still. Um, also, runs are down and the uh, runs are up in the sixth inning, which is where this really takes place. So, and then the other thing is that I don't think that the pitchers are any healthier than they used to be. There's certainly no obvious evidence that that's true. You know, I do give them credit for fewer shoulder injuries than they used to have in the past, but it seems to me that every other injury is more than compensates for it by going up. So I don't think it's working. Is it possible that the strand rate and the uh, increase in runs that has resulted from the, the uh, lower strand rates, could that be the result of the, the baseball, the uh, home run surge that's been caused by the combination, I guess, of the baseball plus the launch angle revolution? Yeah, it is, it is possible. Um, sure. Uh, I'm sure it's a factor, but I... I and and maybe it would be worse. I know one person did suggest that, that it would be worse if it wasn't for these things. But I don't know. I mean, the, the structure of it, Who, when a pitcher comes in in the sixth inning, how often is he a good pitcher? And not very often. Um, the other, you know, they keep adding the 13th man, almost every team now, now does. By the definition, that guy is a marginal major league pitcher. Um, so it seems to me that, more innings are still being thrown by inferior pitchers, and that's got to be a factor too, I think. Could it be that the injury suppression results that I think some of the teams are looking at trying to protect their pitchers is not something we're going to see in the near term? It's going to result in longer pitcher careers, and we'll, have, we'll only be able to assess it in you know three or four or five years' time? Also possible, yes, I think so. Um, but I think that... Um, I haven't seen it yet. Um, so, and this has really been going on, you know, for all of our lifetimes. I mean, you know, I think every decade, probably since, you know, the 1800s, pitchers pitch fewer innings. Um, and I, I mean, I haven't noticed in the previous decades that careers were any, really any longer than they had been before. Um, so, I mean, I don't think that anybody really knows what's going on with it. And I don't think that. Uh, Anything has been established. I mean, maybe the thing to do here is if you're going to limit pitcher innings to go back to four-man rotations. Uh, and that might be, you know, I don't see how it's really going to hurt them. I mean, I don't see the problem in, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of pitchers who are willing to volunteer to be, you know, human test subjects in this. But um, uh, it seems to me that the more innings your better pitchers throw, the better your pitching is going to be you know, ball or not. Yeah, sure, there's something going on with the ball, but basically you want your best pitchers to pitch the most innings. I never thought of that before, but the idea of having just four guys uh, pitching limited innings makes more sense to me than running out that fifth guy every every uh, whenever the occasion calls for it. And he, like you said, he's the fifth guy, therefore he's the marginal guy in the starting rotation, just like the 13th guy is the marginal guy in the bullpen. And maybe the trick here is to figure out, for the for the teams, is to figure out how to optimize, if you're only going to let guys throw a certain number of innings, figure out who your best 
you know, four starters are and your best seven relievers and uh, somehow allocate the innings among those seven, uh, 11 guys instead of the 13 guys and get more innings out of your uh, out of both the good starters and the good relievers by spacing them differently rather than assuming that the guy pitched Thursday, therefore he can't pitch again till Tuesday. Right, and, and, and I think that there's some juggling that the managers have to do, and they're forever trying to avoid doing that. But I don't see, what, as far as the relievers are concerned, I don't see what's wrong with letting them go through the batting order once. I mean, so much has been made of the third time through the order, and they're not, pitchers aren't effective. Okay, that makes sense. Um, but why not have your, you know, your good relievers go once through the batting order, and then he gets two or three days off, and then he does it again? I mean, it seems to me that that would be pretty efficient. Yeah, if it was every third day that the guy was doing that, you'd get him into 40 games in a year. I know that's not as many as they're getting into now, but it would be more outs. And I think that would be the the critical difference is that you want these guys to get outs, not days on the job. Right, exactly. What about the idea, and I've talked about this before with with guys on the show and uh, actually talked about it with Rob Dibble once on Sirius XM Radio. Uh, he was uh, dead set against it, but I think there's an element there of that's not the way we do it. And, and so uh, here's the idea. Every, uh, a starter starts, he, he throws his 110 pitches or 105 pitches or increasingly 95 pitches, and then he takes five days off. But during that time... He goes into the uh, bullpen and he throws a, a a throw day they call it or, or something like that where he's gonna you know keep his arm loose and and I often wondered if he's gonna be on a mound throwing pitches anyway why not let him do it in a game? I agree. Um, I, I, I what I don't get either is on the same related topic is that why do they throw eight warm up pitches before every inning and what a waste and what does that accomplish? Um, you know. Three, four, you know, over the course of a season, I think that adds up. You know, they're always talking about, well, you know, he's been up three times in the bullpen. They got to bring him in the game, and that's a waste of pitching, and that's true. But this is, this is the same sort of thing. I mean, if they're trying to be efficient, you know, let's let's be more efficient. Yeah, I like your idea, though. Yeah, throw an inning, lefty Grove style. You know, on that same topic. When I go to games and I like to get their early watch batting practice and stuff, the the starting pitchers out in the uh, bullpen throwing pretty hard for a good half hour before the game starts, sometimes longer. And I often wonder how much is he leaving on the on the table here by by throwing his first you know sixty pitches or whatever somewhere other than in the game. Yeah, I think that that's true too. I mean, the, the idea being to get loose and to get sharp, but. You know, there should be some sort of studies done. I would hope the teams are doing it to uh, to figure out, okay, you know, what does it take exactly to get loose and to get sharp in the pen and not throw one extra pitch after that. I agree. Maybe maybe they should just be doing yoga out there or something like that just to get <laughs> generally loose. I, I, I'm being serious, you know. The, the, there are ways to loosen your muscles and connective tissue that don't involve throwing a ball, even if the, even if the ultimate intent is, is to throw a ball. I mean, the, there are other sports where, I mean, you go watch a, a football game, and before the football game, they're all out there doing calisthenics and stretching, not you know, bashing into each other or, or throwing the ball around as much as just getting their bodies loosened up. And maybe pitchers are doing that as well somewhere that we can't see it. But uh, usually I, I know when I watch a game on TV, they'll say, oh, so in the case of uh, bullpen guys, they'll say, oh, so-and-so's up in the bullpen and, and they'll, 
they'll cut to him and he's just standing there and he's got a like a, a metal bocce ball in his hand and he's swinging it around or he's just he's just generally loosening up he's not throwing the ball yet he's doing something to get loose and it, it seems like maybe there are ways that these guys could get loose without throwing as many pitches outside the field of combat and that we know that the main cause of injury is throwing a baseball really hard. I mean, we know that whether whether it's sliders or fastballs or whatever the case might be, we know that number of pitches equals risk of injury. I think that's pretty well established. So it seems like the team should be thinking about every way they possibly can to avoid having these guys throw pitches, except when the pitches are, are earning everybody money. Right, exactly. This raises the question, since we know what the situation is and there's uh, not much chance that anybody's going to change it in the near future, what do we do as fantasy owners to respond to the reality? Well, there isn't much that we can do. I mean, we still have, you know, there's a relative aspect to it in that everybody's pitching less. So, you know, you just reduce your, you know, your absolute standards. But I I do think still that the pitchers who are throwing the most innings are you know, a, a little more valuable than they used to be as long as they're throwing quality innings. I don't think there is much that we can do about it to keep our eyes open and look for the guys who, you know, are getting better as we've always done. I can't think of anything anyway that, that um, you know, some sort of magic response to it. I don't think there is one. Yeah, and Gene, the crazy thing is, we should all be uh, seeing ERAs rise in our fantasy teams, but in every league I'm in, the guy who's leading the ERA is under four, way under four in some cases. In uh, Tout AL, uh, Mike Podhorzer's team is down around 330, and it seems borderline impossible uh, that anybody could be that low. And, and I'm, my team's well under four as well, and I don't even have that good of pitching, <laughs> you know. And and so I'm wondering, is are we stumbling into the the, the right answer here just by accident sometimes? Yeah, um, and I think that there's a, such a bigger difference, it seems to me, between the better pitchers and the worst pitchers. Um, so, I, I mean, it doesn't seem to be that the league-leading totals um, seem to be, at least as far as the decimals are concerned, seem to be pretty consistent and um, just as low as the, you know, the great guys are just as great as they ever were, um, but there's more guys who suck. Um um, I, I I don't know. It's interesting to uh, to speculate on it, but I, I as far as where as far as us playing is concerned, I don't think that we should do anything differently. I think we should just you know be looking for the best pitchers and who are throwing the most innings, and they they're a little more valuable than they used to be. I just checked uh, at my uh, Tow Wars team, and Podhorser's at 327, and I'm second at 368, and there's a third team under at 378. And then our whips are, uh, the top three are under 120. And it seems, like I said, I don't think my pitching staff is that great. And yet here I am bundling along at 368. Maybe what we need to do is get a look at a whole bunch of leagues somehow. And I've got some contacts in some of the staff providers or NFPC could probably help. And look at what is the ERA spread between first and last in a 15-team mix? And this is a 12-team American League only. You'd think our ERA should be even higher than it, than they would be in a mixed league. What, are, what does it take to lead a mixed league ERA? Well, I mean, I think that if you're, uh, you know, you got to be in the low threes. Uh, I'm looking at my XFL team, the, the team that's winning an ERA, Perry Van Hook is three and a half. Um there's one, two, three, four, five teams that are under 1.2 in WIP. Uh, 
Um, I'm just over at 1.21. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's more a function of, uh, of, of a split in, in, in quality. And, all, you know, all these pitchers that are the higher ERAs are coming more from the pitchers, you know, from the, 13th, the 12th and 13th pitchers on the team. Um, I think that might be the answer. Yeah, and sometimes it's a it's a good combination of, of very few starting pitchers and very many long relievers, a little bit of luck. Uh, I know that uh, Podhorser has Marcus Stroman on his team, and I think his ERA, it's up a little bit over three now, but for the longest time it was floating around two. He's got Lucas Giolito at barely over two, and I think those things are going to correct over time. Uh, David Price at 270. So maybe he's just been lucky so far and that these guys' ERAs are not keeping pace with their ex-FIPs or with their ex-ERAs, and, and sooner or later it's going to correct. But for now, it seems like whatever whatever's going on is going on in the direction that he wants it to. Yeah, well, I think Mike makes him, made some awfully good picks there. Deserves to be fin- to be in first place, I think. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball, writing for The Athletic. And Gene, I guess we might be a little bit scooping the Boone section of Boons and Banes with this, but in your McCaffrey's Musings column at The Athletic, you had a list of daring buy-low targets. And I imagine you'll be able to add some Boons later on who aren't in that column or that we don't talk about here. But let's talk about first, what makes a player a daring buy-low target? Well, I want to say... First, that I'm not really advocating the guys that I that I mentioned there. What I'm basically saying is, yes, there's a point where I would take these guys because you're going to be getting them. Jose Ramirez was the first guy that I mentioned. Now you can't get any lower than that now, and I'm not expecting to. I'm not expecting him to be a fantastic player from now on. I'm expecting him to be better, and I'm expecting him to be worth trading for if you're getting. You know, if you can get him for fifty cents or even seventy cents on the dollar, um, you know he's he's such an extreme example. You know, I know our friend Mike Salfino thinks he's the new Carlos Baerga, and I can't argue with the facts. But a guy like that who was so good, and it wasn't just for a little. You know, it was two and a half years. He was a great player, not a good player. He's a legit first round pick. He's still commanding the strikes, and still way better than average in in his eye ratio. Um, he shouldn't be that bad, and uh, you know I can see from from looking at the facts that his big biggest problem is that he's hitting two hundred against the shift, and they're shifting him much more than they used to be. That to me is a correctable problem. The other part of his problem is the massive power outage. Well, I think that you know thirty nine home runs was was a fluke. And I think that we can see that now in retrospect. But I would still expect him to hit 15 home runs from now until the end of the season. So I think he's going to be a valuable player. And if you get him at the right price point for the right player, um, I don't think it's as daring as it appears to be on paper. That's my point. And you said in the column, and I thought this was the key to it, the idea is not to make these trades straight up one for one, where you try to acquire Jose Ramirez for some single player the idea is more like to get get a get a trade going where you accept his dud Jose Ramirez because you actually also get something better from him and in the aggregate you you win the trade. That's right. I mean, you can win. You're trying to win both sides of the trade, and, and that's why you you know you you know it's the old buy low sell high thing, um, but just done in in a manner where you can actually get the trade done, and the only way you're going to get that done is to 
is to get a much better guy on the other end of the deal, whether it's a closer or a hitter or a pitcher. The other top buy in your column was Kevin Gosman of Atlanta, the pitcher, who might be the Jose Ramirez of the pitching ranks. He had a 218 last year over six this year, whip 114, now 151. And you acknowledge he was in danger of losing his spot in the rotation. Uh, I read uh, he's just been placed on the IL with plantar fasciitis, so this may have taken care of things anyways. But uh, even if Kevin Gosman's done for the year with this foot problem, why did Kevin Gosman make your list? Because he has a long history of being really good in the second half. Um, and, you know, he's over 880 innings, so I don't think often those things are flukes, but in this case I don't think it is. Um, he still has really good stuff. I mean, when I wrote the article on um, on best fastballs, he was in the top ten. Now he's fallen down from that um, since then, but he still has plus pitches. He still has good stuff. His control is not bad. He should be better than he is. His history says that he will be better than he is. So, you know, the fact that his owners are panicking, I mean, now obviously is not the time to trade for him, but if he comes back, and even if he loses his spot on the rotation, as long as he comes back healthy, I think I'll get it back before too long, and I think you can pick him up for peanuts and uh, maybe get some benefit out of it. You mentioned that uh, article about fastball usage and velocity. Give us some of those details about Gosman or just in general. Well, one of the things I like to do early in the season before the before the results, you know, are re- have stabilized is look and see who's doing things differently, who who's gaining velocity, who's lo- losing velocity, um, what changes there have been in in the characteristics of of the pitches. And so that's a good thing to do early in the season and and I did that with the fastball and uh and the slider and I'll do it again with the change up and and looking at the um the best fastballs you know I I broke them down by characteristics you know how often you're using it what your uh velocity is your average velocity your max velocity your minimum velocity which I think is important because I think it's a real I I know there's been a lot of talk on on shows about the concept of guile um, which could also be defined as pitching intelligence. Um, the ability to vary your speed on the fastball is is an asset to a pitcher. It's an element of pitching intelligence, and it's the sort of thing that that characterizes a good fastball. And um, and it, I'm glad that it really showed up in, in looking at that. That those pitchers that made the top ten were way above average in the differential between their minimum and their maximum velocity. I, when I read that, I thought this makes a lot of sense to me because one of the things we look for in a quality changeup is how much how much speed difference there is between it and the uh, and the fastball because the idea, of course, of pitching is to upset pitter uh, hitter timing, and if you can get that timing problem, if you can create that timing problem for a hitter and not be throwing a pure changeup, it's like you have a second changeup really. If you can take seven miles an hour off your fastball and throw a, a changeup that's 10 miles an hour off your fastball with movement and different movement, all of a sudden it's like you've added a pitch, even though it's still going to be classified as just a fastball. Maybe that we need to start thinking about, you know, max fastballs versus min fastballs as two separate pitches. Exactly. Um, it's a little risky to do it with good hitters. If they happen to be looking for that, then, you know, and you don't put the ball where you want it, um, it's gone. 
but I think it is. I, I mean, it showed in that in that study that it is a characteristic of the most effective fastballs that there is a a bigger differential in velocity. And of course, it helps to have you know the great max velocity too. I mean, let's not you know let's not minimize that. Well, we'll talk more uh, in the second segment, Gene, about fastballs and other pitches. Uh, this has been a treat so far. I knew it would be. I didn't think we'd get a chance to talk about ABBA, but that was good too. Uh, we'll take a break here, get to some player news, and we'll pick it up and keep going with part two in a few minutes. See you then. Gene McCaffrey is a fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic, and he'll be back a little later on in the show. Coming up, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League. Nick and Jock, coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. You are challenged by the game of baseball to do your very best day in and day out. And that's all I've ever tried to do. Thank you. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League News. And leading off, it's our National League Report and our old friend, Baseball HQ analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Probably the biggest news we heard on the week was the Dodgers putting shortstop Corey Seager on the injured list with what was described as a significant hamstring strain incurred while he was running the bases. Uh, I saw the highlight and he was trying to score from second and he pulled up lame at third. Uh, Early indications were that the strain was at least a grade two strain. Uh, Jock Thompson covers the Dodgers for playing time today. Uh, What are the ramifications of this announcement and what's the latest? Well, the Dodgers sent uh, Corey Sager to, for an MRI to get a clearer idea of the severity of the strain, but standard diagnosis at sportsinjuryclinic.net says that a grade 1 hamstring strain is relatively mild with a twinge of tightness, a little swelling. Grade 2 is more severe, uh, typically involves a sudden sharp pain at the time of the injury, which definitely sounds like what we saw in the replay. Uh, and Seager pulled up real suddenly and grabbed the back of his leg and was wincing and grimacing. It sounds like a grade 2, which is typically a 3- to 4-week recovery time. They're hoping it isn't a grade three, which was a much more serious tear of the muscle, gets recovery time of up to eight weeks or more and can require surgery. The fact that he limped off the field without having to be carried suggests that was not a grade three, and I believe the MRI came back saying it's somewhere between a grade one and a grade two. So uh, not the not the best diagnosis, but not the worst that they could have gotten. Right. Uh, I think Seeker's going to likely miss a month or so rehabbing even with the uh downgraded severity so that brings us to the question while Sager's on the shelf who gets his playing time at this point we've, we've given all of the playing time to Chris Taylor uh, we, we're assuming the signal will be out for some time after the all-star break perhaps until the end of July and for now we're giving Chris Taylor the playing time uh, Taylor lost at bats early on this season due to a decline in his offensive production now has a 218 batting average with five home runs to 174 at bats uh, suggesting that that playing time that we've given him is certainly not etched in stone. Uh, Enrique Hernandez can also man the position, and there are lots of other resources that the Dodgers can use uh, should they should they need an upgrade. Um, you know, with Taylor, it's one of those things that's hard to tell. He's uh, shown some power and speed potential with 39 home runs, 27 stolen bases over the last two seasons, but also has very significant contact issues, especially on pitches that are in the strike zone. Um so that could certainly be, be problematic if he doesn't produce right away. Uh, as we said, Enrique, Enrique Hernandez can handle the position as well. And possibly waiting to the wings, the Dodgers have a premium shortstop prospect, Gavin Lux, who's really on a roll at double-A. 
897 OPS, 13 home runs through 223 at-bats. And we should note that Chris Taylor had been platooning in left field with Jock Peterson, so that might bump Jock Peterson's playing time a little bit. Um, but we can expect Chris Taylor, especially against right-handed pitching, to take uh, most of uh, Seager's at-bats, as you said. They also activated an infielder, Matt Beatty. I presume he's bench material? Yeah, I think he's really just backup bench material. He takes uh, he takes uh, Seager's place on the 25-man roster for now. But uh, it may be one of those things where he's on a, on a shuttle very soon once they figure out exactly what they're going to do. In Atlanta, Kevin Gausman got placed on the 10-day injured list. He has plantar fasciitis, Nick. Uh, that's that inflammation of that thick band of tissue that goes from you know, underneath your heel bone all the way up to the ball of your foot. It, it's there so that you can absorb shock, basically, and and it really hurts when something goes wrong with it. I've had it, and it really does. Uh, it's very, very uncomfortable, and you certainly can't play professional sports with it. Uh, Phil Hertz covers Atlanta for playing time today. He says that Atlanta is now going to be shuffling its pitchers. Uh, Sean Newcomb, the reliever, is scheduled for a Saturday start. They're waiting, of course, for Dallas Keuchel to get ready. What's going on with Atlanta's rotation here? Uh, Gossman's spot in the Atlanta rotation was already in danger because he'd not been pitching well, uh, and that was uh, waiting for Dallas Keuchel to arrive. Uh, it's not clear yet how serious the injury is. The expectation, though, is that Gossman, when he comes back, will go to the bullpen for a while, uh, at least initially, to uh, to see how he responds once he's uh, at pitching at the, at, the, at the bullpen level, uh, once he's able to pitch again. Atlanta also recalled reliever A.J. Minter after he spent about a month at AAA. What is his role likely to be? He really pitched very well at AAA Gwinnett. 15 strikeouts, just two walks, a 2.53 ERA. That would have been lower except for a three-earned run outing uh, in, a, in his next-to-the-last appearance. He could get some save opportunities uh, since closer Luke Jackson has not been tremendous in the closer role. Uh, at this point, a 3.66 ERA, a 7.16 OPS against uh, he has nine saves, but also four blown saves. So uh, Jackson's been okay, but not uh, not certainly a shutdown kind of closer. Uh, Mentor's not a bad stash if your league rules can accommodate it, but he's no sure thing either. Uh, he was uh, three saves uh, as a ninth inning guy, then a blown save, and three losses with his 7.59 ERA. So uh, they're, they're going to be a little gun shy with Mentor probably uh, as well. Well, I'm a Luke Jackson owner, and he's the only thing keeping me afloat in the category, so fingers crossed that he gets it straightened out. But yeah, Luke Jackson, uh, uh, one of the reasons that I picked him up when I did was before he became the closer, his ERA was around 220, and, and I thought, well, here's a guy who's figuring it out. He's coming into his own, and you know, as soon as they hand the guy the ball in the ninth inning, I know analysts like us, Nick, we like to look at that closer role, and we say it's just another inning, but for some guys, it's sometimes not just another inning. Well, you know, it's one of those things we, we, we frequently talk about guile and uh, can a guy really handle that kind of inning because there's certainly a certain amount of, of stress handling the ninth inning when you know that you've got to really, really be a shutdown kind of pitcher. Uh, it's a different kind of stress than if you're pitching the seventh or the eighth where somebody else can come in and bail you out. So uh, certainly different guys handle that kind of stress differently. And I guess that's our question about Luke Jackson at the moment is how well does he really handle that kind of situation? 
And uh, ironically enough, having another guy behind him like that to pick him up might actually add to the stress because now he's thinking, you know, the next time I give up an earned run, I'm going to lose the job. And, and that adds to the pressure of just getting guys out in the first place. It's a tough situation. Certainly that pressure was not there with Mentor in the minors, but it certainly is there with him back up and, and potentially able to take over the role. Well, Nick, this next bit of news caught me off guard, and I know many other people. San Diego sent their star rookie right-hander Chris Paddock to single A. Uh, Jock Thompson covered the story for playing time today. Uh, Paddock's decimals look pretty good to me. 315 ERA, 093 whip. What does a guy have to do in San Diego to stay on the big league roster? Well, yeah, Paddock's been 1-3 over his last five starts, and a 5-7-6 ERA over those starts that raised his season ERA from 1.55 to 3.15. Uh, this wasn't a performance thing, more more bad luck than skill erosion, uh, just a little bit of a high hit rate, a low strand rate, causing that, that to happen. And probably some regression from that initial 1.55 ERA uh, would have been expected as well. What Jock says is that San Diego was trying to manage the workloads of all their young pitchers uh, as an after effect of Matt Strom going to the IL. Uh, there's no way at this point of projecting uh, when Paddock returns, though, we'd bet he'd get both short innings and days off while he's down at high A. And, of course, the situation got muddled up with Matt Strom just coming back from the injured list. He came back on Thursday night. Didn't look that good in Colorado either. No, but then, you know, I, they brought him back in Colorado. What, what a way to bring a guy back from the IL, right? 3.1 innings pitch, seven hits, six earned runs, four strikeouts, four walks. So uh, kind of an iffy outing. But, uh, you know, you don't know how much to discount that because it's in Colorado. You don't know how much the San Diego brass will discount that because it's in Colorado. Uh, so uh, that, that's now a question. Strom is back, but does he need to go down and uh, get some uh, – he's another young arm and may, may need some rest eventually at some point. So, uh, you know, what what do we know here? It, it's, a, it's confusion at the moment, especially for Strom and for Paddock owners. Well, Strom himself, even uh, even if we discount this uh, latest outing, his ERA was around 4, his whip was around 116, so he wasn't actually pitching that badly. And if you discount uh, the uh, the bad start, it, it actually looks reasonably decent. Yeah, Strom has pitched pretty well. I've got him on a roster and been very pleased with him most of the time. He's been For me, he's been kind of a matchup kind of guy, so when I want him in there, uh, but he's pitched very well and had a blow up uh, that that he's one of those guys who had a blow up early in the year. Uh, the reason I got him was that uh, somebody bailed on him after his first outing, uh, which was a, which was a bad one, as I remember. And then he's pitched pretty well since then. He has, and he was a, a tout darling coming into the year. A lot of people were pointing to Matt Strom and saying he was the kind of guy who could make the adjustment uh, jumping from the bullpen to the starting rotation. And as you said, uh, at the start of the season, I think he gave up five earned runs in a couple of innings, and a lot of people just thought, well, this didn't work, and threw him overboard. And uh, at that time, his ERA was around 17, and then all of a sudden he, he started pitching reasonably well. And since then, his ERA is 343, which is pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty solid. I mean, you'll take that. That's the kind of thing that, that I'll certainly take on a fantasy roster and most major league teams will take uh, at, from a starter. That's a, that's a solid ERA uh, and should, uh, should be passable. And 51 hits, only eight walks in uh, almost 58 innings, so it's barely a base runner per inning. After that first 
terrible outing. Uh, this is one of those things where uh, we're going to talk about uh, Ryan Bloomfield's column. One bad outing can really make a guy's line look a little bit distorted as far as how really bad it is. Uh, and uh, maybe that's the case with Matt Strom. In any case, with uh, Chris Paddock being sent down to single A, who's going to get the, the playing time that Paddock would have had? You know, after uh, there, there's a possibility Cal Quantrill had originally been scheduled, I think, for that outing before in Colorado before uh, Strom came back. Uh, Cal Quantrill looks very well positioned to shoulder some innings in San Diego, one and two and five starts, ERA close to five, whip of 135, but does have a dom rating of nine strikeouts per nine innings and a command ratio of 3.7 strikeouts per walk. So uh, he, he might get a start or two or, or three or four. Another possibility is prospect Logan Allen, who has a 5.15 ERA through 68 innings and hitter-friendly PCL, but he also has a 63.22 strikeout-to-walk ratio. So his major league debut might not be too far off. And Quantrill's actually piled up a good number of innings, uh, 148 innings last year, so he seems to have the stamina to take on the, the added workload of pitching in the majors. That could be something. Uh, Nick, we, I just mentioned that Ryan Bloomfield had written about this one bad start thing. If you throw out Matt Strom's terrible first start, all of a sudden he looks pretty good. In the speculator column, Ryan looked at a whole bunch of pitchers whose season lines have really been ruined by that one bad start. And one of the names on his list is a guy I've been hearing a lot about lately, Miami left-handed starter Pablo Lopez. Yeah, that was a really good column and, and something people should take a, a close look at because it, uh, it it talks about Pablo Lopez and a lot of other pitchers whose lines you look at and say, I don't want that guy, but he'd been ruined by one bad start. And Lopez allowed 10 earned runs in three innings versus the Mets back on May the 10th. Uh, and at that point, his ERA ballooned to 5.93. And you kind of go, oh, no, I don't want this guy on my roster. But he's been dominant since then. Just six earned runs combined over his last five starts. That's a 1.88 ERA and a 0.88 whip over those five starts. And his overall ERA now is down back to 4.26 with a 112 whip and around a strikeout per inning. So, you know, you, you look at that and a lot of guys may still be looking at that and saying, no, that's not very good. But take that one start out and you've really got something with Pablo Lopez. He's picked up a mile per hour on his fastball this year, resulting in more strikeouts, 10.7% swinging strike rate in 2019, 7.6% 2018, and a 4.1 command of 127 BPV. We're a bit skeptical about uh, whether he can hold that level of pinpoint control for much longer. Only a 55% first pitch strike rate doesn't jive with a control ratio of 2.2 walks per nine innings. But a strong bet to post a sub-4 ERA the balance of the season with about a strikeout per inning, and that's nothing to, uh, that's nothing to sneeze at. Interestingly, uh, this exercise usually is focused only on starters because of the numbers of innings involved. But if you think about it, a bad outing for a, for a relief pitcher, especially a closer, can be way more impactful because they have so many fewer innings to, to kind of amortize the, the big hit across. And uh, so Ryan Bloomfield in his column actually mentioned some closers. And one of the guys who made his list, we've just been talking about, Luke Jackson, uh, gave up four earned runs in his first appearance of the season and has since posted a 2.03 ERA. Now, as a closer, as we mentioned, he hasn't been quite so successful. And uh, I guess that's something to consider. But anytime you're looking at a pitcher, Nick, I think the message is if the skills are there, but the results aren't there, 
it can be worthwhile to go back through the game log and say, is there one catastrophic outing in here that is really skewing the overall picture? And and it gets back to what Baseball HQ always says, Nick, which is look at the skills first, look at the results second. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, that's that's the thing to keep in mind because, as you said, especially with a closer, a, a catastrophic outing can be three earned runs in a third of an inning. Uh, and that's with, with the kind of innings a closer gets or a, a relief pitcher gets. That can really balloon the ERA, but it may only be one bad night. Maybe the guy didn't eat the right thing for supper, you know, and it just didn't work. So it's definitely a thing to keep in mind is how did that ERA get to where it is? And did it happen over a series of outings or was there, as as uh, Ryan said, one bad outing that caused all of this? And Ryan also said, as far as Luke Jackson goes, uh, that the bad outings he's had recently, a couple of blown saves, more bad luck than a lack of skill, a 39% hit rate, a 25% home run per fly ball rate. That's kind of unusual. And he says Jackson is one of two closers with a 200 plus base performance value uh, with at least 30 innings pitched. And the only other guy who fits that profile is Josh Hader. And most of us wouldn't mind having Josh Hader. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, what we hope hope is that, uh, before they get too disgruntled with Jackson and the uh, over in Atlanta, they'll take a look at our numbers and realize how good he's really, really doing. And most teams, I think, are aware of that kind of thing now. Anyway, they don't have to look at baseballhq.com. But but the ideas that baseballhq.com has long been presenting are finding their way into the big leagues, and teams are being much more sensible about overreacting to to short run things like this. Uh, in the playing time tomorrow space, this is something at Baseball HQ that I really like and I rely on super heavily. And it's a uh, an article once a week. We go through all, each of the divisions day by day and look at what the roster is going to look like down the road. Not what it's going to look like tomorrow, but what it's going to look like next week and next month. Alain de Leonardis covers the National League East for playing time tomorrow, and his coverage this week uh, looked particularly at the Mets. And this was an interesting question to me, Nick, whether Dominic Smith, we've been waiting for him forever, could finally be emerging as a force in for the Mets in outfield. What's the scoop? In spring training, Smith was competing for first base reps, first base reps with uh, another guy you might have heard of called uh, Peter Alonso. And Alonso won the battle, and as we know, uh, Alonso has, has done very well, and that left Smith on the outside looking in. But the Mets were adamant about not playing Smith in the outfield. They thought this guy's first baseman only, forget about it. But GM uh, Brody Van Wagenen decided to roster both players. And the brilliant results have carried over to the regular season for both Alonzo and Smith. Uh, Smith's been a disappointment thus far in his major league career, uh, but even in the minors. Uh, but this season, Smith has looked like a different player. Slash line of 360, 455, 587. 19 runs, 4 home runs, 9 runs batted in. 14% walk rate, 77% contact rate, 126 PX and 75 at-bats. Really doing pretty well. Uh, a cautionary note, his, his gaudy numbers have not been really well supported. A 43% hit rate, a 277 XBA, 30, or 83% points below his batting average. Uh, 70 expected power index. Those don't pretend a true breakout. But it may not all be smoke and mirrors. His uh, minor league 354 Batting average on balls in play suggested he could hold on to at least some of his currently inflated balls in play rate. 
his 112 hard contact index and 94 expected power index over the last 31 days describe a kind of rising trend in quality of contact. And this offseason, he eliminated, uh, got treatment for his sleep apnea, and that may have cleared a significant roadblock to his success in the major leagues. Boy, I'll say, uh, you know, anybody who's had sleep apnea or knows anybody who has, it's really tough. And can you imagine trying to hit a major league baseball curveball at night and you haven't had a decent night's sleep in the last week? You know, what a difference that could make. Uh, The point is, do you think Smith can maintain enough of this improvement to stay on the roster and keep, uh, keep a place in the lineup? Yeah, Elaine says that will likely depend on two factors. The slope of his inevitable regression, he's not going to stay hitting as well as he is. Uh, and the progress of his quality of contact. Uh, the team's going to continue to start him somewhere as long as he produces, especially with Jeff McNeil covering second base after Robinson Cano re-injured his quad. So pay attention to the weekly uh, expected power index and the hard contact index. If they persist above league average, then we could be witnessing at a real breakout for Dominic Smith. And finally, Nick, some good news for Buster Posey owners. Uh, they activated Posey from his latest stint on the 10-day injured list on Wednesday, option to catcher Aramis Garcia back to AAA. Rob Carroll covering the story for playing time today. I'm going to guess that Posey's business as usual. He'll go back, um, do some catching, and keep doing what he does. What, what, what do you think? Yeah, certainly. He missed the minimum time, returned to a 270, 57, 321, 408 slash line, and 168 played appearances, uh, went one for four in his return game, and will again resume the bulk of the uh, of the catching duties for the Giants. Uh, for Posey, age, uh, durability issues, uh, rigors of position are conspiring against him, uh, most noticeably in the power department, but he retains some fantasy value. He's got solid bat on ball and plate skills, uh, and certainly is uh, in, in a, uh, uh, a, a terrible uh, catcher outlook. Uh, in general, is like a kind of a solid guy you'd want in the lineup, although not what he was probably four or five years ago. Garcia was two for ten with a homer in, in his uh, recent term with San Francisco. Stephen Vogt resumes his role as Posey backup, but uh, Posey's back in the lineup and uh, sort of the guy, the guy that you want in your lineup at this point if you're going to play with a Giants catcher. All right, Nick, thanks a million for helping us out. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go now to the American League Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD, how you doing? Doing fine, thanks. Uh, let's start with the Angels down in your neck of the woods. Justin Bohr, who was sent down uh, a month or so ago after a horrendous start, has been recalled from AAA. Uh, the Angels also sent rookie first baseman and part-time pitcher Jared Walsh back to AAA. We'll talk about him in a second. But first, how does the return of Justin Bohr change the Angels lineup? Well, Bohr had been pretty awful during April and the first part of May, uh, peak, peak. Like you said, he's he's returned a few days after the Angels sent down uh, Jarrett Walsh because Albert Pujols' knees can only play so much first base. Uh, if, if you notice the, the playing time he had there last year, I think he had his most games uh, at first base in a couple of years, 70, and he wound up with knee surgery. So that'll tell you something. And obviously Shohei Otani owns most of the DH at bats. Uh, um, but... Uh, Bohr actually came back. He hit a home run the first game, a three-run homer. He did some damage in uh, in Salt Lake City, posted a, an, an OPS of over 1,000 with five home runs. So maybe he's back on track uh, going forward. I, I think uh, 
I think Bohr's probably uh, going to get all of or most of the right-handed at-bats at first base. Uh, Pujols will get some and Pujols will get all of the left-handed at-bats and then they'll fight for some DH at-bats that uh, Otani doesn't have. I would expect Bohr to hit a few home runs and hit for low average, hopefully not as low as he was hitting because when the Angels sent him down, he was hitting under 200. Um, but if you're looking for some pop, uh, he's got a track record of hitting home runs, particularly against right-handed hitters. So um, I would expect home runs, low batting average. Uh, that's what you'll get from Justin Bohr. And uh, Bohr's been the specialist, uh, more or less, for the Angels against uh, right-handed pitching, as you said. So he figures, what are you thinking, 80, 80%, 75% of the at-bats with Pujols maybe getting a few here and there against right-handers? Yeah, that's that's kind of my guess. Um, obviously, Albert has the big contract. Um, they're going to spot him a little bit in, uh, against right-handers. They're not going to make him purely a a hitter against a small part of that platoon. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how that works out. Obviously, I think performance and health are going to play into that. Jock, when uh, when Bohr was playing for Miami, he was actually a pretty good guy at drawing a walk and had on-base percentages kind of in the 340, 350, 360 range. And after that, he got traded to Philadelphia, and then he signed with L.A. as a free agent, and his on-base percentage just plummeted. He was under 300 in his part year in Philadelphia, and when he left the Angels to go to AAA, he was at uh, something like 267, which is really horrible. And it's so out of character for him. His on-base percentages, his whole career have been, like I said, they've been 350, 360. Is there any news or any analysis that suggests why his on-base percentage went down so drastically? Well, it's interesting. I'm looking at his, uh, his walk rate right now, and it's 11%, which isn't bad. Um, the biggest problem was his batting average, uh, and, and the Angels have really stressed uh, um, uh, pitch selection this year with their club. If you look at the Angels up and down the lineup, pretty much everybody's uh, walk rate is up. Even Albert Pujols, who's had a terrible walk rate uh, since he's joined the Angels, he's probably having the most success this year that he's had in a while. His walk rate is back to 10%, so uh, it'll be interesting to see what Bohr does going forward, but I agree. He was he was very good at taking a walk because he's historically been good, so I would expect him to stay around 10 11%. Uh, now let's see if he can get that batting average up a little bit. So that'll be the key. Uh, when he was at his absolute heyday as a, a walk taker, was more around 15%. You said right now currently more like 10 11%. So he's got a bit of room to return to that level of walking, which would help his on-base percentage. But uh, more critically, he's going to have to start getting some hits. Yeah, yeah, exactly. His uh, his contact rate is uh, is pretty bad right now. It's below 70%. Uh, that's not real good if you're looking for a... Uh um, a, a guy who's going to get you batting average. Currently hitting right now, according to our player link page, he's hitting 167. So uh, he he hasn't been very good. But he was doing much better when he was down in AAA. I mean, it's a hitter's environment, but still, uh, maybe did he just need a chance to get his head screwed on straight? Yeah, something like that. You're right. He was doing he was doing well. Obviously, a a, a, a lot of hitters do well in the PCL and in Salt Lake City. But uh, yeah, let's see what he, let's see what happens to Justin Bohr over the next few weeks. How much rope do you think the Angels can afford to give Bohr on what is a second chance? And he's a free agent at the end of the year anyway. So uh, could they also want to showcase him a bit and maybe try to snag a draft pick or a prospect or something? Yeah, is he a free agent? I know that they've signed him. Uh, they signed him this year, but he, I I think they still own his rights. I think I think he's ARB eligible, but I'm not quite sure how that works. So they still may own him. Um, 
the um, it, it'll be interesting to see how much rope he gets. The the problem that the Angels have right now is 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 that contract uh, that uh, is Pujols' contract because he needs help. He needs spelling at first base. He cannot play more than uh, half his games at first base, or seventy. I should say 70, 80 games a year at first base. He's uh, he's going to need some help. He can't DH because of Otani, or at least he can't DH that much. They're either going to have to have Justin Bohr or maybe Jared Walsh back again to handle some of that. So I would expect one of those two to be around most, if not all, of the year. Yeah, he'll be ARB eligible in 2020. You're right about that. But it still puts uh, the Angels in a position where they can just elect not to carry on with him. And uh, that's what I was wondering about. Uh, We talked about Jared Walsh briefly. Here's an interesting guy. He really shot through the minors last year. He climbed three levels. He had 29 home runs across his minor league year. He can take a walk, uh, speaking of that. And he can pitch. I don't know how good a pitcher he is. Maybe you can fill me in on that. But what kind of a future does a guy like this have with the Angels? Yeah, he's a he's a real interesting guy. He he first came to my attention in spring training. I watched him play a couple of games at first base, and he's a very smooth fielder. He's athletic. Uh, all the reports I read about him are accurate, um, and uh, he's he's doing some damage in Salt Lake too. I think he's hit like ten home runs. Uh, let me check here. Uh, Jared Walsh. He said, "Yeah, he's hit ten home runs and 150 at bats. He's walked 24 times. His biggest issue has been contact. He struck out 45 times, uh, one third of the time in Salt Lake. He made less than 60 percent in his rookie debut, and he didn't hit any home runs in his 32 at bats. But he hit the ball hard. His hard contact rate was about 123." Um, He's an interesting guy to watch. I, I don't know what his uh, his upside is, but I think given that he's a left-handed hitter, uh, um, he he's interchangeable with Bohr if his contact if his contact gets a little better. Um, he might have a future uh, with the Angels, and and the pitching thing is interesting. I watched him pitch a couple of times. They were in blowouts. Uh, one an Angel loss, one an Angel win. He held his own. His numbers weren't great, but he only gave up a run in two innings. He didn't exacerbate the situation. And nowadays with pitching, I think that's what clubs are looking for when they're when they're considering two-way players, just somebody to come in and give them innings when they don't want to run out the rest of the staff. So, uh, I, like I said, I watched him pitch. He has a, a curveball. He throws l- low 90s. Uh, he gets out of sync a little bit. He doesn't pitch enough to be to be that precise. But uh, I think he has a future in doing this. Well, he only had a few innings in the minor leagues in 2018 when he was climbing all those le- levels so quickly. But he had a 159 ERA, which is not <laughs> not nothing, you know. Uh, but uh, that may have been strand rate related because he had a 140 whip, and usually those two things don't fit together that well. Uh, speaking of Angels pitching, Matt Harvey, Jock, has been terrible. A 7.50 ERA through 10 starts. Then he went on the injured list with an upper back strain a couple of weeks ago. We were expecting him to be back shortly, but he's apparently re-aggravated the injury. You cover the Angels for playing time today, and you watched them closely, and you covered their pitching outlook in particular in playing time tomorrow. So what is the overall rotation outlook with the Angels, and who is going to benefit from the opening that's going to be left by Harvey's ongoing injury problem? Yeah, the rotation's been a real problem over the last few years, primarily injury-related. So Harvey's issues aren't new to this organization, even though and even though he and Trevor Cahill, both off-season signings, have been big disappointments. Uh, actually, longer term, I, I think things are looking a little better, just not sure how much. The, the big picture shows uh, uh, Tyler Skaggs, Andrew Heaney, and Felix Pena all pitching pretty well. If you look at their BPVs, their ERA 
ERAs aren't aren't indicative of how well they've pitched. I think they're going to get better as long as they stay healthy. Um, the best news has been Griffin Canning, who's effect, in effect taken over Harvey's rotation spot and run with it. Uh, even though they're going to manage his starts, uh, his innings for the rest of the year, I don't think he's going to leave the rotation anytime soon, even if Harvey had had come back. Uh, and now another rookie, Jose Suarez, has taken a couple starts and at least pitched credibly. He's given up five runs in ten and a thirds. Uh, scouting reports say he knows how to pitch. He's got a great changeup. I've watched him. I, I concur with the reports. Um, he's another guy whose innings are going to be managed. I, I think the Angels are thinking more about their future past 2019 than, than, 29, than 2019 per se. Um, they're going to have some tough calls uh, when Harvey and Cahill return. Um, I think they'll probably give both of those guys a, a couple of starts to prove themselves. Both have ERAs over sevens, and, and they're on one-year contracts, so the Angels aren't married to them. I suspect they're going to move on shortly from from those names and uh, that, that Canning and Suarez are the guys to own going forward, uh, that, that they're going to make more starts this year than Harvey and Cahill. I think the problem after that is the, the MLB-ready depth uh, backing these guys. You've got Nick Tropiano, who's another oft-injured uh, guy who has some swing and miss but gives up too many home runs and walks, Jaime Berea. You've got Tommy John surgery rehabber J.C. Ramirez, who, who could be back in another month. Uh, it's not a very impressive list, but uh, the, the Angels are looking better than they've looked in, in the past couple of years, I think. Also, Dylan Peters, I think, is a name that pops to mind when you say an unimpressive sort of not that much depth being added there. Yeah, Dylan Peters uh, over from uh, Miami in the offseason. He's made a few starts. Uh, his uh, his ERA in nine innings hasn't been bad, 4.15. 5.01 is his expected ERA, and he's, you know, that kind of gives you more of a feel for, for who he is. I don't see him with a future in, um, in, uh, in, Los, in uh, Southern California. In Toronto, their closer, Ken Giles, was put on the injured list with elbow inflammation. That never sounds good, so what's the prognosis, and how is Toronto going to handle the ninth inning and the rare saved opportunities that pop up at Rogers Centre? Yeah, you know, I just pulled up Giles' numbers for the first time. Boy, he's really been good for Toronto, uh, better than he's been in, in Houston. Uh, they say that uh, they don't expect Giles to miss much time. Elbow inflammation sounds a lot worse than not missing much time, uh, um, right now, it looks like uh, they have Joe Biagini um, um, as his backup, and he's been serviceable to date, not not particularly good in his last three, four appearances. I don't know. This this one looks shaky for me. I think Toronto had better hope that Giles is coming back soon. I don't see any obvious skill choices in uh, in that organization uh, or on that 25-man roster. Uh, they don't have a real bat-missing arm there or in the system. What do you think? I mean, you're close to that, closer to that situation probably than I am. Well, Biagini did not look great in his first uh, in his first appearance after they named him the starter. He wasn't in a safe situation, but he gave up a couple of walks and a and a couple of hits, and it was horrible. He gave up uh, they gave up four runs in the inning between him and the guy that came in after him, and uh, it just wasn't an impressive thing. On the other hand, we have to assume that there's not going to be a lot of saves opportunities, as I said, and there's one other question I'm really curious about, and that is. I think it'll be good for us to figure out who is next in line if it's not going to be Biagini, and Biagini has not run with the ball, as you suggest. But Montoya's going to have to trust somebody in the event that the team decides to trade Ken Giles to a contender. Now, as you said, Ken Giles is pitching really well, and I can't imagine that there aren't general managers on contending teams out there that look at Ken Giles and go, we could use this guy. 
And if he gets traded out because he's of no use to Toronto, he's ARB eligible next year as well. And, and they're, plan is not even to try to be competitive until the year after that. So it makes sense for them to trade Giles while he still has a degree of, of control for acquiring team. I think there's a lot of moving parts here that we can't even see that are kind of moving along under the surface. Yeah, I concur with all of that. And, and, and right now, at least at this point in time, I'm, I'm scanning this organization and I just, I, unless they, unless they turn a starter into a reliever, somebody like, uh, you know, Reed Foley, who, who, who at least has an arm, even though he still walks too many people, he, he at least has some swing and miss, you know, there, I, I, I don't see who they're going to replace Giles with, but I agree completely with you that uh, Giles could fetch a nice price or should fetch a nice price given what's happening to relief pitchers and even on contenders right now. In Seattle, the Mariners got some good news. D. Gordon is back from the injured list this week. Rod Trusdell wrote the story for Playing Time today. So how is D. Gordon looking and where does this leave uh, Shed Long and the whole playing time situation in Seattle's uh, situation? Well, Gordon's going to move back to his old familiar spot at second. Uh, they're actually moving long all over the, the, the field. He's played some third base and left field uh, aside from some second base when, when Gordon was out. Uh, he could be sent down at some point to play every day, but I'm, I'm looking at uh, the recent Seattle lineups, and I see Mac Williamson in left field. I still see Tim Beckham on the roster uh, getting time all over the place, even though he's still making errors all over the place. Jerry Depoto is still trying to move names, uh, primarily Edwin Encarnacion at first base. Uh, Gordon is even rumored to be among these. Uh, so Long could stay up as an outfielder or as a utility in, in the long haul. Roster-wise, I look at this and, and I see a, a, kind of like Toronto. This is, a, this is a difficult roster to project for the rest of the year uh, just because of the rebuilding outlook and the quick figure by, finger by uh, Jerry Depoto. Yeah, and I think that, of course, Gordon's stock and trade is going to be speed, but he's 31 years old. Uh, he's starting to come down with more of those aches and pains and bruises. Uh, the last IL stint was a bruise. It wasn't anything sort of um, tissue-related or like a, a damaged tendon or ligaments or anything like that. He just got a, a bruise on his wrist. And ordinarily, we wouldn't think, oh, well, you know, he's not a power hitter, so a wrist injury isn't that big of a deal. But he, what did he have? I think 12 stolen bases in 160 at-bats before he got hurt. And that prorates to, what, about maybe 45, 50 over the course of the year. So he, if, you, if you keep him on your roster, you could be looking at 30 stolen bases, but you could be looking at 15, too, depending on whether he plays, wh- whether he gets traded and moves on somewhere else. There's a lot of moving parts here again because the team is not playing well. Yeah, Gordon is a wisp of a guy. He's not one of those guys who was going to fill out as he got older. And he's the kind of guy who once he hit his 30s, which he is now, um, he, he's. He, it seems like he might get injured more. And he, he had a lot of nagging aches and pains last year that uh, really drove down his playing time, uh, spent some time on the DL. It drove down his, uh, his stolen bases. Um, his risk is increasing as he gets older. Like you said, the stolen bases are gold, particularly nowadays. But uh, D. Gordon, uh, you know, if, if if you need something more than that, and you're and you're and you're uh, uh, risk averse, uh, he may not be your guy. Well, another team that seems to have a lot of moving parts and is moving them in and out regularly has nothing to do with being a bad team. The Houston Astros are a really good team, and yet they keep 
changing and making moves and trying to make their team stronger still. And they finally called up slugging prospect Jordan Alvarez after injuries really took a toll on the team's offense. Uh, Alvarez chipped in right away, a couple of home runs in his first two games. You cover Houston's playing time with both Altuve and George Springer reportedly close to coming back, at least to rehab. Where does this leave Jordan Alvarez in the long term? Yeah, I mean, if he hits, he's going to play, particularly against right-handers. Uh, uh, beyond that, as anyone's guess, right now I have him at 50%. I may be being conservative. Uh, I'm usually pretty conservative on a on an immediate call-up. Uh, sometimes they don't work out. I have him spending most of his time at DH, and sure enough, he he spent it. He played his first three games at uh, at uh, DH. Um, Houston's begun clearing the decks uh, a little in advance of Springer and Altuve coming up. They sent. Derek Fisher back this week uh, after after promoting Alvarez about three four days afterward. Um, Fisher had only hit 226 and 53 at bats over the past two and a half weeks. He'd been getting a lot of time in left field when Michael Brantley was being spotted at the DH spot, and I, I suspect that Alvarez is effectively going to take on a, a similar role as Fisher um, in terms of he may get a few games at, in left field when he's not DHing. Um, I I think most of us at Baseball HQ and and anywhere else looking at the situation think that Tyler White is as good as gone uh, it's been a big disappointment he was their full-time or most of the time I should say DH Alvarez is taking over most of that role the, the guy that's interesting to me now is Tyler or I'm sorry Kyle Tucker because he can play left field too and he still seems like a call-up that looks waiting to happen so Alvarez is going to have to keep, keep hitting and not just for power he's going to have to hit for average because like you said Houston is loaded one place they're not loaded, and I'm surprised that this didn't come up, is first base. Uh, Yulieski Gurriel is handling most of the reps there. His on-base percentage is well under 300. His average is under 260, and his uh, slugging percentage is under 400. He's just not driving the ball at all. And Jordan Alvarez, at least in the minor leagues, is a first baseman by trade. Is there any chance that he steps up and takes over Gurriel's spot playing first base? It's interesting. I just wrote that one up in uh, playing time tomorrow in, in my musings on where Alvarez might play when he wasn't uh, DHing. And, and, and Guriel seemed like a logical uh, choice in terms of him getting some, some time there. But believe it or not, Al, uh, Alvarez is actually an outfielder by trade. He's a left fielder. He's a subpar left fielder, but he has more time there than he does at first base. He only has 40 games at first base. They played him nine times there this year. Um, Guriel is still a pretty good fielder, um, and he's probably only a hit rate uptick away, at least from from getting his batting average up back up to 280, 290. The problem he has over the long haul is that he he doesn't generate any power. His power is still sliding over the last two years, and it was never very much to begin with. And he's 35 years old. I was I was a little surprised that uh, that the Astros kept him on this year. I, I I get that he's under contract, and I think he's got another two, three years on his contract. But but this is a club that uh, has expectations of winning now pretty much every year. And I, I, I think you're right over the long haul. I think that uh, first base is going to be one of those spots they look at, uh, at putting uh, Jordan Alvarez uh, long term um, it'll be interesting to see how much how much time they give him this year um, because from what I understand he's not a very good defender there either 
but it's easier to be it's easier for the team to carry a, a substandard defender at first base where let's face it 90% of the job is catching thrown balls how hard can that be versus leaving him out in left field uh, chasing balls around when he's kind of a large guy not too quick you know the, it seems like from a defensive point of view if they don't want to DH him and that seems like ob- the obvious choice as you said but if they do want to reserve that DH spot to allow uh, they're injured or injury prone players to circulate through maybe get half days off here and there i don't know when i look at uh, alvarez's potential versus what guriel's doing it seems almost like a no-brainer I, I just don't understand why they if alvarez can hit at all why wouldn't they let him hit there yeah i don't know i don't know why they only played him nine games at uh, you know at first base but i would be willing to bet that the first time you see alvarez in the field will probably be left field i don't think you're going to see him there a lot and i wouldn't be surprised if he gets some games at first base but uh it's it's my understanding and i haven't seen him play in either spot that he's he's a little bit better in left field just because he's played there throughout the minors than he is at first base well, he left AAA batting 343. He had an 1184 OPS and 23 home runs this year and just over 200 at-bats. See, the kid can hit, that's for sure. Jock, thanks a million for helping us out. We'll talk to you again in two weeks. Okay, PD, see ya. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it'll be part two of our feature expert interview with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball and a columnist at The Athletic. But right now it's time in our show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our Buyer's Guide columns, columnist Stephen Nickrand looks at pitchers and batters using the splits for bases empty versus runners on. In scouting coverage, the Daily Collops reports cover Miami right-hander Jordan Yamamoto, Toronto right-hander Jordan Romano, Colorado left-hander Philip Deal, as well as other recent collops, and in the eyes have it, scouting analyst Chris Blessing discusses two prospects, Cleveland outfielder C.J. Abrams and Toronto right-hander Alec Manoa. And in the Facts and Flukes Spotlight, BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and analyst Brent Hershey focuses his spotlight on the Mets outfielder Michael Conforto. And those are just four articles among literally dozens, a small sample of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We have player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. There are the buyer's guides for hitters, starting pitchers, and relievers. We have fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse and injury analysis three times a week. As well, there are tools like the player projections. They're updated every day. Daily dashboards and pitcher matchups tools and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers added up and BaseballHQ.com has the content and tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. There was something in the And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Gene McCaffrey, fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic. Gene, welcome back. Nice to be here. 
In another recent column at The Athletic, you applied the Pythagorean one-loss projections to pick out closers that we should be interested in. And again, let's start by setting some definitions for listeners who don't recall the idea of Pythagorean one-loss projections. What are they? Well, you take the runs scored, you square them, and then you divide it by the runs scored squared plus the runs allowed squared, and that gives you your expected winning percentage. It's an old thing. I think um, Bill James popularized it way back in the early 80s, and I think it may uh, antedate him. I think Branch Rickey used to use it. Um, but anyway, it's been a consistent, uh, consistently um, effective thing. that I, I believe over 90% of the teams are within two games of their expected Pythagorean one lost. And so it's a pretty relentless predictor. And so my idea with the closers is is to look for the teams that are underachieving. Um, if possible, add them to the teams that have played fewer games. Um, and you'll get usually three or four teams that are that should be expected to pick up the pace as far as wins are concerned, and that, therefore, as far as saves are concerned. Um, it's always worked. I mean, I've done it for about 20 years, and I, I can't think of any example where where a closer who was obvious did not finish in the top five and saves from then on, not necessarily leading the league, but, you know, picking up the extra three, four saves that have won many a roto league. And before we get into detail, Gene, does that mean teams that are ahead of their Pythagorean one loss, the closers on those teams, and maybe even the starting pitchers on those teams, should be guys you're thinking about moving along because the chances are they're not going to get as many saves or wins as they have been getting? You're looking for the teams that are underachieving, the teams, the teams that have won fewer games than their Pythagorean expectation, and those are the guys that you're targeting. And conversely, you're looking to avoid the teams that are overachieving. Um, for instance, uh, um, to be specific, I mean, the most underachieving team at this point are the Reds, and the most underachieving, or the most overachieving team are the Pirates. So, I mean, if you if you right now traded um, Felipe Vasquez for Jose Iglesias, you should work out. I mean, you're going to do better for the end of the season. I can, I'll pretty much flatly state that. You know, regardless of how good the pitchers are, they're both good pitchers in this case. Um, but you want Iglesias from now on. He's the number one guy to get. Razel Iglesias, right? Razel, that's right. I yeah. confuse him with his teammate now, Jose. You said the Rays are also under their wins expectation and they have fewer games played. And as you said, that's seemingly the ideal combination. Yet you're cautious about recommending their closer. Uh, why the expectation being different for them? Because they really don't have a closer. I mean, they have three guys and they're all borderline awesome. If you're in a position where you have two closers and you need a, a third guy, any one of the three guys, Jose Alvarado, Diego Castillo, or Emilio Pagan, is a good guy to pick up because he is going to get some saves. And as I say, they're all borderline awesome pitchers. Um, two of them, um, Alvarado and Castillo, have a little control problem, but their their stuff is so awesome that it should be able to um, to overcome that. And if they get any better, then they're just going to go through the roof for the rest of the season, and Pagan, you know, is is right there with him, and his control is better. So if he could pick up one of those three guys, if you only need a few saves, 
um, they'll be great and they'll give you quality too. But if you need a you know a solid second closer, they're not the place to go. And the idea of offering Felipe Vasquez in trade if you happen to own him is really good because everybody likes Felipe Vasquez. He's doing well. He's a, he's a really good pitcher. But if you look ahead and figure, well, the Pirates are not going to win as many games or not going to stay on the same game-winning pace, which isn't all that impressive anyway, and uh, all of a sudden now you have an opportunity to maybe, as you said, Felipe Vasquez for Isla Iglesias or even for one of those Tampa guys. You, if you went for one of the Tampa guys, theoretically you could ask for something in addition, because you're giving up the best player in the deal, or so people think, and then maybe you could uh, make a two-for-two and end up with uh, both ends of it being the the winning thing. The obvious counter to this whole approach, Gene, is that injuries, trades, the stars not aligning can also affect team success, and and there are also closer roles that get affected by poor performance or just by not enough games to save. How does the plan account for those kinds of uh, outside-the-box problems? Well, most of those things are are in addition to the Pythagorean thing. Um, the good thing about it is, is that if a guy loses his job, the same principle applies to the guy who takes over the job. Um, so that's good. Um, yeah, trades and injuries will definitely affect it. If a team, for instance, you know, I said Iglesias is a great guy to pick. If the Reds ever decided to dump, then, okay, then my great prediction goes into the toilet, but I don't think they're going to. Um, so, but keep that in mind, you know, for the listeners when they're they're looking at it. If the team has a reasonable expectation of dumping, you know, in, in a couple of months, I would run these numbers again. Also, towards the end of July, right after the All Star break, is a good time to do it. Also, because um, there's still time to plenty of time left to pick up in saves, and we know more as far as who is closing and who is injured and who is beginning to dump. And I don't know. I mean, it's going to be really interesting this year to see what teams decide to dump and what teams don't. Um, So, yes, keep an eye on that. You closed the column with a note that really wasn't directly related to the uh, whole win-loss projection thing, and that was, don't be surprised if Andrew Miller becomes the closer in St. Louis. Jordan Hicks, Gene, has been pretty effective. He's 13 for 17 in saves, but he's also got two holds in there because of the save situations didn't come up in real save situations. So he's 15 for 17 being successful, and lately he seems to be the guy the Cardinals are comfortable with. So what made you say that uh, Andrew Miller has a decent shot at taking over from Jordan Hicks? Yeah, I mean, that is a speculative thing, which is why I separated it out. But my reasoning is, A, that Hicks is one control collapse away from losing his job. Um, he, yes, he has done the job, but his control is shaky. Um, and the, the other thing is that I think that Andrew Miller is at the point in his career where he is a would be most effective as a one-inning guy. Um, and the Cardinals have always been a, a traditional. They're, they're not don't-rock-the-boat type of team, not uh, particularly inclined to go experimenting with bullpen things. So I think that it's very possible that at some point in the season, not today, not tomorrow, um, that Andrew Miller will be a a one-inning, quote, traditional, unquote, closer. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Gene McCaffrey 
From The Athletic and Gene, you've had a series going for a while now at The Athletic about various pitches, analyzing pitch by pitch and pitch movement and how all of that contributes to finding pitchers to target and not to target. Uh, before we talk about the, uh, the specifics, what was the genesis of the series? Where did the idea come from? Well, as I said before, early in the season, I, the best thing to do to look at what's real and what's not is to see who's doing things differently. And one of the good ways to do that is to is to look at the pitch value charts um, for the various pitches and see who's been you know who's added something to his fastball slider, who's improved this, and and you know, what are the reasons for the success or the lack of success in the pitchers, and to try to use that to predict um, how good you know how well they're going to hold up, or if they're being bad, um, what are their chances of turning it around. In your coverage of fastball use, what were the high-level findings? What was the big picture? It's it's really interesting is that I was looking at it um, yesterday, and um, there's been a lot of change on the on the on the top ten in in both those pitchers. But I think the, the still the takeaway of it is is that these are the guys who have really effective pitchers. Therefore, in major league terms, they have something really good going for them. Um, you know, we're not talking about good. We're talking about top ten. Um, so, yes, these guys are keep an eye on guys who are who may not be um, fantastic, but are still, you know, if, well, put it this way: if you have a great fastball, you're going to be pitching well. If your fastball is effective, um, so yeah, I mean, it's just characteristics. Look at the, uh, you know, objectively look at the what it is that these pitches are doing. And are batters having difficulty with them? And if they are, then these are guys that you want to get or you want to hold on to or like that. And conversely, if their fastball is markedly less effective this year, you know, see why and then make up your mind as to whether this guy's going to turn it around or, you know, cut your losses while you can. When it comes to fastball metrics and measurements, Gene, would you rather have a guy with pedestrian velocity and good movement or pedestrian movement and good velocity? I think the key is to have more than one characteristic going for you. I don't think it matters which one it is or which two it is or which four it is, um, whether whether it's velocity differential, whether it's movement, whether it's velocity. The, the key to all these guys is that they had more than one of those things going for them. And in some cases, they had all five characteristics going for them. And those are guys that, uh, yeah, these are the guys that we want. And it it turned out that even though he's fallen off, Kevin Gosman was one of those guys who was right up there with multiple multiple, uh, positives on his fastball. Another marker for effective fastball use you wrote, and this seems somewhat paradoxical, is that if pitchers who are being effective with their fastball are throwing it less than they used to, why is that? Well, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. Um, the the one pitcher who was most notable about that was Clayton Kershaw. Um, and the reason he's throwing fewer fastballs is, A, he's got the great slider, breaking ball, um, but his fastball is more effective because when the hitters are looking for it, they're not getting it. Um, he's got the ability to put it where he wants it, and so, therefore, by throwing it less, it becomes more effective, and that's you know, an interesting thing to note. 
You also discussed Command Plus, and this is a metric that's going to be new to many of our listeners. I remember hearing about it first at First Pitch Arizona last year from your colleague at The Athletic, Eno Saris. What is Command Plus? It's the ability of a pitcher to put the ball where he wants to put it. Um, and they base it mostly on how the catcher sets up. It's not the only factor, but this is, I mean, it's a new stat. It's probably going to get um, refined as we go along, but it's a great idea. And it, in measuring this, it, it tells you more than just your walk rate. It tells you, you know, it's really command, putting the ball where you want to. It's a, it's a more precise definition of, of control. Um, and I think it's a great it's a great tool for the box. Uh, when you look at the leaders on it, you will see some guys who are um, finesse pitchers um, and even pitchers who weren't that good. But in a way, that validates it more because these guys are are guys that they don't have they don't have great stuff, and yet they're pitching in the major leagues. Why? Because they can put the ball where they want to, and that's. So, you know, you can discount a little bit if a pitcher is a finesse pitcher and he's high on this list. Um, you can say, well, you know, yeah, he's got a ceiling. He can only be so good. But if there's a pitcher who has really good stuff and is on that list, that's like a, you want this guy. Do the people who organize the metric and present it break it out uh, pitch by pitch? Yeah. I've, I've seen it done there. I mean... It's proprietary, and the, the data is hard to get. Um, um, so I, I think it'll probably be a while before it uh, filters down to the public, trickles down to the public. Um, but you know, I think that it, as this year goes on, and at the end of this year, I think we'll um, start to see it more publicly available, and therefore we'll be able to act on it. It seems like such a great thing to know, you know, that the, the idea that we often, when we're watching baseball and they show that center field view and sometimes they draw the box on the screen, so many times you'll see a ball that will be kind of in the uh, up and in corner of the box and you think to yourself at first, wow, what a great pitch. And then you realize, but the catcher set up low and away and he, the guy basically missed his target by, you know, a foot and a half or two feet. And yet he got a good outcome. And that's not the same thing as putting it there on purpose because putting it there on purpose describes a plan and this pitching intelligence that you mentioned earlier. Pitchers really don't hit their spots that often. Um, I remember Greg Maddox said that he could put the ball where he wanted to about 70% of the time. And I remember thinking at the time that that seemed about right for Maddox, but it's certainly not right for most pitchers. They were, you know, they were under 50%. Um, and I, and I, I remember reading Ball four years ago when Jim Bouton talked about pinpoint control, and he, and he said he was always worried because he can only get a ball within a, within about a foot of where he was aiming it. And he thought, well, geez, all my all these guys I'm competing with have pinpoint control. And then he started talking to them, and he realized getting it within a foot of where you aim it is pinpoint control. You know, it's it's guys who miss it by even a wider margin that don't have so-called pinpoint control. It's not really as pinpoint as uh, pinpoint is an overstatement of a, of the of the uh, metaphor. Yeah, well, and of course, the fact is, it doesn't need to be what we would call pinpoint control. It needs to be better than average at it. 
you mentioned the five fastball metrics that you used, uh, maximum velocity, differential in velocity, horizontal movement, vertical movement, and command plus. And only two pitchers were above average in all five of those metrics when you did your study. Uh, James Paxton of the Yankees was one, uh, but who was the other? Chris Paddock, who just got sent down. Um, I think he's going to be back soon. I certainly hope so. He certainly deserves to be. But I heard that that was just as a, a, a means of managing his innings and uh, presumably the stress of his innings. Um, he's a really good one. Um, he, you know, I tailed off a little bit um, in his few starts before that. But, hey, you know, we knew he wasn't going to have an ERA under two. Um, he's a guy who's got a, he's got a bright future. And uh, if you're a Chris Paddock owner, don't despair. Get him on your reserve, but don't, don't get rid of him. He's the real deal. Gene, when you say he can't maintain a, an ERA under two, how do we know that? Well, I guess we don't, Patrick, now that you mention it. Um, I say that because so few pitchers ever do have an ERA under two for a full season. I suppose um, it's possible that you know at some point that, that he will, but I'm just speaking generally. Um, you can still be a really good pitcher, you know, and have an ERA of two and a half, and that's you know, I don't think there's really there are very few pitchers who you can who you can project and say this guy's ERA is going to be under two and a half for sure. Um, it'll happen every year for sure, but you know, as a baseline, as a as a prediction, um, it'll pay to be conservative over the long haul. So it's just kind of a shorthand way of saying. Uh... Uh, we can expect some regression rather than saying it's impossible that a guy can get a two ERA. And I, I agree with you. I don't think he's going to finish the year with a two ERA either, but I'm, but it is, it's within the realm of possibility at least. Yeah. And at some point, you know, if he keeps this up at some point in his career, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a good chance that he'll have an ERA under two and a half, um, even possibly even under two. But I mean, that's such a, it's so hard to do that nowadays. Um, you know, one, maybe two pitchers a year do that. And um, so you can never bank on that. You had a couple of other pitchers on your uh, fastball metrics uh, list of five who almost got five for five, including Kevin Gosman, what we've talked about earlier. Who was the other guy? The other guy is Zach Wheeler. Um, and he's an interesting case because... He his fastball has really been his only effective pitch. Uh, if you look at him, it says he throws five pitches, but to me, uh, it's hard to tell uh, that he's not. Th- you know, they say he throws a changeup and a split finger. I mean, I don't know how they tell the difference between those unless they're looking at his fingers before the before he throws the pitch. Um, but all his pitches except the fastball have been ineffective. Um, and he's throwing, I think he's throwing 50, yeah, 58% fastballs. Um, maybe he should be throwing more. Maybe he should junk one of those other pitches. Um, and, you know, pitchers have been very effective throwing as many as 80% fastballs. And it depends on the pitcher. Um, I think that when he's having so much trouble, he should be throwing more fastballs. And, again, if I was a, I, I own Wheeler in one league, and I'm, of course, holding on to him. But I'm kind of hoping that somebody in the Mets organization decides to um, tell him to, you know, cut it, stop screwing around, just 
say he or hit it. You also recently zoomed in on pictures with what you called electric sliders. Uh, one of the topics you raised in that d- discussion was the difficulty in classifying pitches as sliders versus other kinds of breaking balls, especially hard curves and cutters. What effect does the classification issue have on the analysis? I don't know that it has anything that we can do about it. Um, it uh, I think you just have to be aware when you're when you're looking at the at the pitch things that some of that there's an element of error in them. Um, I looked around to see if I could find a, a definition of the of the slider as opposed to the the cutter at the high end of velocity and the curveball at the low end, and there really isn't anything. I mean, I remember um, our our old friend, the late great Steve Moyer, talking about this because he designed this whole um, thing of looking at pitches um, back in the day. And he said, you know, we just told the guys to do their best. And, you know, this was, you know, listen to the announcers, which could be wrong. Um, use your own eyes to the best of your ability and realize that it's not going to be perfect. So, you know, have a, when you're looking at these pitchers, you know, if he just throws a slider and a cutter, um, you might even lump them in together and, and say, okay, this is really the the effect of the slider is that, that it's, that it's really two pitches and combine them. Yeah, and I have to say, whether I'm watching on on TV or whether I'm at the park, uh, I just I can't discern a lot of times, even if I'm sitting right behind the plate or just off where I should be to to see uh, with to say with confidence, hey, that was a slider or oh, that was a you know a hard curve or a cut fastball or whatever the case might be, because there's there's no template you know that the the one pitcher's slider is another guy's cutter it's just that they happen to to go about it differently and and so that there's certainly a lot of murk there but leaving that aside once it gets established as a slider or categorized that way gene how did you characterize it as effective versus not effective i use the uh, fan graph pitch value stat which is a, a based on linear weights um, the other thing I was going to say about that is you can use your eyes to look at the shape of the break uh, on a pitch because there are definitely pitchers who throw a cutter and a slider or who throw a, a slider and a curveball. If you look at the shape of the break, um, you can see, sometimes tell that, yeah, they're two different pitches or that's just a different, it's the same pitch being thrown at a higher or lower speed. All of which just muddies the waters a bit, but uh, if it's all if it's all we got, it's it's what we got to use. Uh, so the uh, the pitch value at uh, Fangraphs is your is your metric, and the top gun on your list is probably not going to surprise many people. Justin Verlander of the Astros has the uh, most effective slider on your list, but let's look at some of the names on your list who are less expected. And I was a little surprised to see Shane Bieber's name on there. What's he doing so right? Well, he's a pitch mix guy, um, and he, this year he sacrificed a little bit of his fantastic control um, to get more movement on his pitches, and that it's pretty much working. Um, he's in a little tough situation because he's not getting any run support, um, but he's a really good pitcher, um, and his control is still quite good. Um, he gets by on, on a mix, and he's not really a finesse pitcher, his fastball gets up well above average in velocity and combined with those using that pitch mix is what makes I think that lends effectiveness to all his pitches. 
And what's the score with Caleb Smith of Miami? I've been seeing a lot of positive coverage of him playing for such an awful team. Yeah, well, he's also another pitcher who's, you know, if you see a pitcher who's got two-plus pitches, um, that's a real good indicator that he's going to be good. Um, that's the story with Smith. He may have been a little too good. He's come down to earth a little bit, but I think where he is now is where he belongs. Not a, Again, not a very good team, but um, perhaps not a disaster that um, quite the disaster that that I thought that they were going to be and uh, he had a great ballpark to pitch in so if you're looking for decimals I think that he's going to pretty much hold up where he is now Another guy on the list was Max Freed of Atlanta, he scraped onto the bottom of the list, uh, what's he doing? Well he's another guy that has multiple good pitches, the fastball and the breaking ball he's nasty um, I was a little surprised that his control has been as good as it had been. You usually don't expect a, a young guy to uh, to get to get so much better in his control and to hold on to it over the course of a season. And he has been a little shakier in his last few starts. Um, but he's a guy, a long-term guy, that he's got a chance to be, you know, an elite pitcher. If not this year, then in, in next year or the year after that. When I read your article, I went to Fangraphs and I looked at some of these guys and, and at uh, Max Fried, the issue, it seems to me, and I'm looking at this with uh, very little knowledge, uh, uh, I grant you, but to me, the issue might be that the slider's really the only positive value pitch he has. He's got a couple that are pretty close to zero and a changeup that's actually negative. Is is the next step for a guy like Max Fried, for, as we watch this metric, for him to, to develop another pitch that has significant positive value? Because otherwise, you know, we know that the major league hitters are going to say the only one he can get over with, with great effectiveness is the slider. I'll be looking for it, and I'll foul it off, and I'll wait for him to throw something worse. Um, maybe. Or the other thing is when, when I originally did this, his fastball effectiveness was much greater than it is now. That's fallen off a little bit, but it's still positive, and I don't think that should be minimized. Even if you know, even if it's just a little bit better than average, um, it's that's still a good thing, and it gives you something to work with. And I think that you know, even, now I think he's less than a when a, when a run effective with his fastball. But I think that as long as his control holds up by the end of the season, you're going to see that number higher and with a better fastball. And so the 0.6 curveball, which again is just above average, still a still a benefit, still a positive. Right, that's right. Yeah, I mean he he has had difficulty with his changeup, um, but it's not terrible. Um, that's a question of um, is he going to learn it or is he going to throw it less? I think with some pitchers, the idea is that you will need a third pitch. With other pitchers, um, if they're two pitches are good enough, they can get by by just using the third pitch as a kind of show-me pitch. Um, it does limit their ceilings um, to a certain extent, but if you have two great pitches, you will be successful in the major leagues, even as a starting pitcher. And just as a level set, Justin Verlander, all his pitches are positive. Uh, the slider's 20.9, which is sort of 10 times what uh, Max Fried's is, and I don't know if it's a logarithmic scale or a linear scale, but whatever it is, he's doing something really well, and, and everything else is positive. He has no negative pitches in his arsenal at all. Right, and his that slider is the single most effective pitch out of all pitchers' pitches this year, which tells you, well, 
I mean, we already knew he was great, right? We did that. And it's kind of reassuring to see when these metrics and you start looking into them and they kind of jibe with your common sense. Uh, Sometimes they don't. And and even if they are accurate, it's harder to kind of get people to buy them and get yourself to buy them, frankly, if you see something that kind of doesn't really agree with your basic concept of how a pitcher is doing. A lot of touts, Gene, speaking of that, are saying that Lucas Giolito owners should be looking to sell high right now. He's having a fantastic year. Mentioned him earlier, his ERA is barely over two. But you seem to disagree. You said in your column, this kid is for real. And what are you seeing with Lucas Giolito that a large swath of touts and experts are missing? Well, I don't think they're really missing it. I, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, if you could get somebody great for him now, okay. Um, but I think he's a really good pitcher. I mean, last year he was the king uh, on the beat-yourself um, pitcher carry. I think he led the league in walks. He was way up and hit batsmen and wild pitches. Um, all those things have turned around this year. Um, he's a completely different pitcher. Is is ERA? Is it going to wind up at two and a quarter? No. Is it going to wind up under three? My bet is yes. Um, so from now on, he's to, he's going to be a uh, you know essentially a really good pitcher. Um, the triumph of pedigree over recent history. Um, but you know the it's backed up. If you look at his, you look at the metrics. You look at what he's what he's done. He's an effective pitcher, and he's going to stay an effective pitcher. You know, given the fact that it won't be quite as good as he is now. And he's another guy that when you look at the pitch values list, it's pretty impressive. Three pitches out of four are positive values. Some of them really much, much above average, more than, say, Max Fried, uh, 8.6 for the fastball, 6.1 for the slider, 11.7 for the changeup, which makes that a very effective pitch. Curveball's in the negative territory. I bet he doesn't throw it much. Right, and the other thing is, is don't. I mean, we're we're not even at the halfway, and those are cumulative stats. Those numbers are fantastic. I mean, they're basically saying this guy has three really good pitches, and you know, as long as you you have three really good pitches and you have reasonably good control, I mean, success is it's almost inevitable. And you said these these values are created by looking at outcomes, uh, linear weighted outcomes. Right. You know what would be interesting if there was a way to overlay that command plus on top of these uh, on top of these things, and or uh, to put in hard contact, medium contact, those kind of things on a pitch by pitch basis. I think that would be really interesting as well. I bet there's a huge correlation. Well, I mean, if you look at Giolito's hard contact, it's I mean, it's not elite, but it's certainly very good. So, yeah, to that extent, anyway, yes, it does correlate. Uh, Jacob Junis of Kansas City was on your list, but you didn't recommend him, nor fellow Royal Brad Keller, who's on there. What are they not doing right? Well, that's all they have. You know, one-trick ponies, um, if they can. Junis should probably be a reliever um, to get right-handed batters out, although he might even get some. But in any case, the reason he's not been successful is because he really doesn't have anything going for him but his slider. Not to say that you know he's permanently written off the list, but without something more, success is doubtful. And ditto for Keller, in addition to walking everybody uh, in sight? Yeah, right. That's right. And the comment you made about Frankie Montas of Oakland, this was quite a uh, an interesting thing. You got a 
frisson of Twitter excitement going. I know that's uh, everybody's goal. Uh, you wrote, and I quote this, I would trade Chris Sale straight up right now for Frankie Montas. What are you seeing with Frankie Montas that makes you so interested? Across the board improvement. Um, he also has uh, um, come down a little in his last three starts, but he's still been good. Um, it's more, the comment was more based on the fact that Chris Sale's fastball has not been effective this year. Um, and I don't see how he could be any better than good um, with that characteristic. Either his fastball gets better, he's still got the great slider, he's still got a good changeup, he's going to be good, but without a, you know, without a plus fastball, I don't think he's going to be better than Montas. And, of course, in keeper leagues, there's a huge value advantage as well. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic. And, Gene, during the season, as you know, I like to ask our experts to talk about players you think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. Uh, let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners, whether in trade or free agent acquisition or whatever the case might be. Let's start in the American League. Who's a boon hitter for you? Uh, Matt Olson. Um, he's just starting to heat up. Um, he's done some remarkable things in the past. He's tied for third in um, barrels per plate appearance. Hard hit rate is extremely good. And, you know, this type of hitter is the high strikeout fly ball hitter is extremely streaky. And it looks to me like he's about to go off onto what could be an extraordinary streak. Not just good, extraordinary. In the National League, who's a boon hitter? Um, uh, believe it or not, I never thought I'd say this, uh, Kyle Schwarber. Um, he's improved a lot against lefties. Um, he's hitting well against the shift. He's also top 10 in uh, hard hit percentage, which, which, by the way, I use the baseball savant 95 miles an hour plus because, to me, the fan graphs 85%. 85 miles an hour is below average. Um, so that hardly qualifies as hard hit to me. So using the 95% or above, 95 miles an hour or above, Schwarber is in the top 10. Um, still hoping he'll get traded to the American League, um, which I guess is still somewhat possible. But I, he also hit a home run yesterday, um, which, by the way, I didn't factor in when I, when I came up with it, but I think he's headed up. Over to the mound in the American League, who's a boon pitcher? Um, you mentioned David Price before, and I think he's um, he's another guy who's uh, he's made the transition to finesse plus pitcher. Um, great strikeout to walk numbers. I wish he'd throw a few more innings, uh, but I can't argue with his success. Good team behind him. Um, I think that he's um, going to be good look going forward. Yeah, he's been good so far, as you said. A lot of strikeouts, not many, not many walks. Not as many strikeouts as in the past, but certainly he's cut down on the walks. Last time I checked, he was under 6%, which is really good. And in the National League, who's a boon pitcher? Uh, Brandon Woodruff. He's striking out 30% of the batters. Um, that's awesome. Um, I think he's um, only headed up. I have Brandon Woodruff on my great fantasy baseball invitational team, and I think he's single-handedly keeping me uh, competitive in the pitching categories. He's having a fantastic year. I also got uh, 
Clayton Kershaw. Before we go on, uh, something that, that I wanted to ask you about uh, when you're talking about the shift, you mentioned before when we were talking about Jose Ramirez and his he's really having struggles when they shift against him. And don't you think he could solve a lot of his problems from the left side, especially if he just dropped down 10 bunts in the next two weeks? Yep. That's why I say, I mean, at least that problem is at least partially correctable, maybe wholly correctable. Um, I don't know why. I mean, I've seen a lot of hitters in the last couple of years make adjustments to the shift to their credit. Um, but he hasn't really done it yet. Um, but he's been such a smart player. It, it just, there's a disconnect there somewhere. Um, but it's something to watch, you know. I mean, I'm going to watch his next his at bats and see what he's doing because he's being shifted against like 75 percent of his at bats, which is a lot. Um, so, yeah, I agree with that. He should be starting, especially with his speed. You know, I mean, he's you know he can steal second base at almost at will. So there's a lot to be gained and nothing to be lost based on what he's doing. I mean, yeah, he could he could bump his batting average and on base percentage up by thirty points if he just got you know ten bunt hits over the next three weeks, uh, all, and and then he would force them to not shift him anymore because they can't stop it, or they'd have to run some kind of weird shift with the third baseman standing on the infield grass and the, all those other guys over there. Maybe they would do that, and it would be back to the drawing board. But uh, it's it's an interesting thing. I just don't understand why more more hitters especially guys who can run, don't do that. It's uh, it's astonishing to me. Uh, Gene McCaffrey's Boons, Matt Olson of Oakland, Kyle Schwarber of the Cubs, David Price of Boston, Brandon Woodruff of Milwaukee. Now let's move over to the Baines. Gene, these are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. Let's start again in the American League with a Bain hitter. Uh, Brandon Lau, um, striking out 33.5% of his at-bats, um, Unless that turns around, he's, his average is headed for a fall. Um, I mean, it's a little difficult to say because he's a rookie, essentially, and his skills could change. But at that level, he's hitting lucky, and I would not bet on that to continue. In the National League, how about a Bane hitter? Even more so, uh, Will Myers. His strikeouts are uh, 36.4. Um, that is unacceptable. He's also got, he may wind up sitting on the bench um, if he doesn't turn it around. I mean, the, the Padres have a bunch of guys who can look like they can play. I mean, I know he makes a lot of money. I know he's a marquee name. Um, could also see him get traded, but striking out that much, he's not going to, um, he's not going to be worth what his owners paid for him. Yeah, as soon as you said his name, I thought exactly what you said. San Diego's got a lot of options in their outfield, and uh, certainly they wouldn't lack for uh, alternatives, uh, put it that way. Uh, over to the mound again in the American League, who's a Bane pitcher? Well, I mean, I hate to say it, but uh, Jake Odorizzi, uh, 251 Babbitt, 4.9 home run to fly ball ratio, 84% strand rate. This is a combination that is uh, does not... He's headed for a fall. I've had other people say this to me, and, and and as the devil's advocate, at least, Gene, let me ask you this. Jake Odorizzi, for years, was one of those guys, and I remember writing about him for Baseball HQ, where we said, 
all they have to do to make this guy super effective is get him out after two times through the order. Like he's, he's world-class first times, first two times through. And, and he's a literally a bum after that. And it seems like Minnesota has taken that to heart and they're getting him out after two times through. And maybe is it possible this is really who he is a super effective pitcher, as long as you don't make him face that third time through. I don't think it's surprising that he's been better. Um, I think it's surprising how much better he's been. And um, I'm not saying that he's not going to be pretty good from now on as long as used. But the numbers that I gave you before, I think, are independent of that. And they're going to have their say. You know, those, those are luck factors. And those uh, pretty much established that they're way below... Um, way below norms and therefore headed up or down as the case may be. And something that Michael Salfino brings up from time to time, our mutual friend, is that uh, another advantage Odorizzi has is he pitches in probably the worst division in baseball. So maybe, you know, he's benefiting in addition, he's facing real bad lineups only two times through. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and, and he doesn't have to face the twins and it's even better. Um, there really isn't a, a good lineup in in, in that division. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'm not saying that that he hasn't earned a lot of what he's done. I'm just saying he hasn't earned all of what he's done, and that he is going to be going forward. He's, you know, call him a three point five, one point one eight pitcher, but I don't think he's going to be in the Cy Young voting at the end of the year. Put it that way. And in the National League, who's a Bane pitcher? Um, I think Cole Hamels, even though he pitched a fantastic game at Coors Field last year. I mean, he's... Um, pitchers that have a 53% ground ball rate should not have a 270 BABIP. Um, his average exit velocity and hard hit rates are good, but they're hardly great. Um, so I think that he's... And I hate to say it, because I have a couple of shares of him, but I, um, I think that he's not going to be as good as he's been. Gene McCaffrey's Baines, Brandon Lau of Tampa, Will Myers of San Diego, Jake Odorizzi of Minnesota, Cole Hamels of the Cubs. Uh, Gene, tell us where listeners can read more from Gene McCaffrey. Well, my weekly column Tuesdays at The Athletic. That's pretty much all I'm doing these days. Um, But um, very happy to be part of The Athletic team. I think that if you if anybody who's listening is not a subscriber, they really should be. I mean, they've got a uh, we've got a, what's been called a murderer's row. I mean, there's a lot of really good writers. There's a lot of really good information out there. Um, tying in a week after week, it, it just seems to never end. It's like Scott Pianowski says: it's like you cut the grass and you think that it's all done, and then it all grows back. And but people are just killing it there. And um, I highly recommend subscribing to anybody any of your listeners who were, haven't subscribed yet. And you have a Twitter feed? Yeah, I'm uh, that wise guy, Gene. Um, so I'm up there, and uh, I make baseball pronouncements and sometimes um, musical or uh, once-in-a-while movies. Such as a recommendation for uh, Fernando? <laughs> <laughs> Always good. Gene, uh, this has been an absolute treat. It always is uh, such a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, I'm sure we'll catch up again during the year, and if not, I'll see you at First Pitch Arizona. 
Thanks for having me, Patrick. It's always a true pleasure to be interviewed by you. Gene McCaffrey is the fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic. When we come back, our weekly talk with Todd Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. played all the sports as a young boy, but it was always baseball that I loved the most. I collected baseball cards as a hobby and one day dream of what it would be like to have my picture on one of those cards. You see, I always have been a fan of the game first, and a ball player second. Maybe that's why I had the love and passion for this great game so much. I only caught five or six games my senior year of high school. But during those five or six games, a scout by the name of Bob Zuck, who is here with us today, believed I could become a big league catcher someday. He held true to his word and on the night of the draft, at 18 years of age, I signed a contract with the Expos and started my making plans to head off to Jamestown, New York. Bob, thanks for believing in me. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and I'm happy to once again say to Todd Zola, welcome back to the show. Good to be back with you, PD. You had a really interesting article at ESPN in their fantasy baseball section. Uh, I think it's a paywall thing, so people are going to have to figure out a way to get uh, into that. But uh, the idea of the column was to explain some of the terms and stats that are in use in advanced baseball analysis that a lot of uh, sort of regular users might not be entirely familiar with the correct way of interpreting them or using them. And I, I just wanted to go through There's five or six of them, and and the first one is not really a stat so much as it is a statistical idea, and that is the idea of regression. What is the common error that people make when they talk about regression? You know what? I don't know if it's fair to classify this as an error. This is more of a little bit of a rant on my part, and I think we've... uh, You've been privy to this rant, as I think some of the listeners have as well. But I've come from a scientific background, technical writing background, where we were taught that to, to use words, you know, the, the fewer words, the better, brevity, uh, use words that connote specific things. That way you need less, you need fewer words to make your point, as opposed to some people who believe a scientific lab report should be, you know, filled with flowery language. That's really not true. It should be short and to the point and concise. That's the way I was trained. And... To me, it's just it's a shame that regression, the word regression, when we hear it, we hear it all the time on the radio and read it all the time, a lot of times the connotation is play worse. That if a player is going to regress, the, uh, the idea is he's going to play worse. And it doesn't really explain what's going to be worse. Is it skills? Is it, you know, is it luck? Is it, what, 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 why is the player going to play worse? To me, if I use regression, if I hear regression, I want to know that the person is referring to uh, factors out of the player's control. You know, luck. It's a cliche, but luck regresses, and it can regress in either direction. But that the skill level remains the same, or, you know, skill levels aren't static. They are variable. But the point being, the skills don't change. 
But whatever the happenstance, when a round ball reaches a round, round bat and the wind blows or doesn't blow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the happenstance is no longer there. And that's what the regret, to me, that's what regression means. So when a player regresses, I don't think he's necessarily going to play worse. What I think is if he had some batted ball luck or a cluster of home runs, uh, and he played a, a several games in a small ballpark and give up a lot of home runs, that the home run per nine or home run percent will regress towards his, his career norm. It's just not the case. So I think when you hear the word regression, I think you need to do a little bit of work on your own and try to determine what does the person mean that is saying or writing it? What are they trying to imply? What about the player's performance is going to regress in order to get the best idea of what to expect going forward? Right. In a nutshell, it seems that the common error, we hear this a lot, especially in uh, when we're listening to broadcasters who are trying to use the terminology, I think, sometimes without fully understanding it. And, and mm-hmm. as you said, the idea of regression is that any kind of factor that is nominally controlled by luck is going to move towards a standard. And if you're being unusually lucky, it's going to move and make you unluckier. And if you've been unlucky, it's going to move and make you a little bit luckier. And there's still, it's still all subject to uh, a lot of variation, especially in shorter runs. So when you hear regression, I think Todd, your advice is exactly right. Try to figure out what the person who's saying it actually means and then make your decisions, make your own analyses going from there. And this brings us to another topic that you raised, which people, I think, broadly misunderstand. And you call it, and it's called widely in the realm of logic, the gambler's fallacy. What does that mean? Yeah, real quick, the point I meant to make on regression, regression shouldn't be a bad thing. It shouldn't be a, a knock on the player to say he's going to regress. That's that. You know, sort of keep that in mind. Right. Gambler's fallacy, and... This is the first time I've actually taken this this writing to, to this level, and I'll explain why. Um, you know, Gamber's fallacy, I think most people know, is the, uh, if, the, the idea that luck evens out. That if you flip a coin and it's heads, well, the next time it's a better chance that it's tails because we know it's supposed to end up 50-50, whereas each individual flip is independent, and each flip is a 50-50 chance that it ends up heads. So even if you get nine heads in a row, the chance of a tails on the next one is is, is still 50-50. And Gamber's fallacy is, is assuming eventually it has to even out so that the next flip will start that process. Um, therefore, when we talk about regression in, the, in my strictest form, if a player has bad luck, it's not you don't expect the regression, the bad luck to re- completely reverse to good luck. So at the end of the day, the, nu- the luck turns neutral. It's proper to expect neutral luck going forward. Uh, and that, you know, the kind of regress has that idea being the numbers move towards the mean, but because there's already some stuff that's already in the bank, never actually reaches, you know, the final luck-oriented stat may not reach the mean because they've got some you know, bad luck or good luck already baked in. That doesn't mean it can't flip, but it, you shouldn't expect it to. Now, the level that I sort of, not some, I, the, the, the part of the um, discussion that I kind of added this time was based on a, a piece by our friend Nando DeFino, who's now with The Athletic. And he talked about um, why shouldn't, you know, sometimes, you know, these are human beings, why shouldn't you expect a batter that normally hits 300, that's hitting 275, 
to hit over 300 as opposed to expecting to hit 300. And from the pure luck point of view, you shouldn't. But there's another element, and that's that that's that's skill. And as I mentioned, skill isn't static. There's, there's still skills have a range. There's a range of skills. And maybe maybe this is actually bad luck, but maybe a player has faced a bunch of really, really good pitchers and pitchers' parks. And therefore, that batter's numbers are going are gonna to suffer over that stretch. But then he comes home in a good park, faces some lesser pitchers, and the numbers climb again. The same skills... But they just translated to different outcomes. Now, one could argue it's good and bad luck, the uh, the, the schedule. But it could it could be that that a player's skills, a player's skills can even out is what I'm getting at. Where the the, the luck doesn't have to. It depend. Uh, I I can see where a player's skills can even out. So, the, you know, the classic example I think I used in this case. Uh, you know, I think I used a pitcher. I mean, a hitter. So we'll use it again. You know, a hitter hitting 275. Some looks at, at midseason expect 325 the rest of the way, while others say the, the, a 300 hitter should hit 300 the rest of the way, and you know it's either extreme. Whereas not, whereas neither extreme is probably right. You need to figure out the contribution of luck. You need to figure out the skill and is the player due for facing different opponents or more home games or more away games, and then combine the two. To figure out ultimately where it's going to land, so it's really one you know one extreme or the other is not is not the way to go. It's really hard to figure out the actual split, but that's to me anyway. That's the way that, that it's that it needs to be done, and we do have the Statcast data at our disposal now to help us. That's one of the, the main purpose of the Statcast data. Statcast data is to continue to find that fine tune that luck skill line you know we're, we're, we're every every new metric helps us delineate luck from skill that much more then it's just we have to figure out when it's applicable that sort of thing but that's that's you know in sort of big picture what's what what's statcast for to me anyway you know there's several different applications but from what i do statcast is to help us all discern luck from skill yeah, and you said uh, you know making these calculations and making these assessments is a way to figure out what's going to happen. In fact, uh, we all accept that the best we can do is figure out what's likely to happen, and right. within a fairly uh, wide range of vari- of natural variation, especially in the shorter run. Uh, we were talking um, a time or two ago about the uh, the normal range of outcomes for a 300 hitter. And I mentioned the Derek Jeter study I did a few years ago mm-hmm. in which the shorter you make the run, the wider the variation is for a guy who was a career 300 hitter. Once you got to, I don't know, 8,000 plate appearances or something, his variation over any 8,000 plate appearance slice was right around 300 because it evens out over long uh, sets of samples. But as you get shorter and shorter, they, those numbers get wider and wider, and, and a normal 150-game variation for Derek Jeter was something on the order of 260 to, to like 360, basically. Right. And when you're looking at how a player is doing, the best you can hope for is to say, okay, we're halfway through a season. That means we got 80 games left. Over 80 games, the natural variation of things, whether it's caused by luck or skills variation or competitive changes or park differences, all of these kind of things are kind of baked into this idea that over 80 games, 
a born 300 hitter, a natural 300 hitter, is going to hit somewhere between 220 and and 380. And there's really anything in there is normal, and you can't really expect anything other than that. If it's outside of that, then you've really got something to think about. But you know, if 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 a 300 hitter hits 240 for 80 games, you can't say, well, he's due to do something different later on because that's just part of the way a 300 hitter's life is going to go. Yeah, now I imply with the skills evening out that it, you know, the same skill level, as you suggest, it, you can start the season off a little bit injured or, or whatever, so your, your skills are, are, are affected. So your skills can improve, you know, or they can or they can get worse as you get tired over the course of the season. So sure, it, it just the, the, the point being, you know, neither neither extreme is, cor- is correct, and I think either extreme has been what most people, you know, will argue that, you know, they'll argue for the complete reversion or they'll argue for, you know, strict regression. And the the fact is they combine. You also wrote about uh, BABIP, the batting average on balls in play, what we at BaseballHQ.com call hit rate. It's all Mm -hmm. the same thing. It's the number of balls that are put into play that end up being base hits versus being outs. And the... I was talking with Gene McCaffrey earlier in the show. We didn't cover this, but we've talked about it before. He doesn't get, and sometimes I don't get, why home runs aren't included. And you uh, analyze this and say some call it a flaw and that it's not. Why isn't it a flaw? A home run's a hit, right? Right. Now, it, it depends what you're trying to do with the BABIP. That's the, it's, it's, it's all kept in context. BABIP is supposed to, you know, in, in a true sense, be a measure of defense and be a measure of defense against. You know, or measure how defense influences, or how the batter can defeat the defense on getting hits on balls in play. Home runs and strikeouts aren't balls in play, so they don't get counted. If you're trying to find, if if you want to, if your study is based or your interest is more on uh, the result on balls that are hit hard, then yeah, that's a different a different uh, number, different numerator, different denominator, because it needs to incorporate the hard hit home runs. It all depends on what you're trying to do, what you're trying to look at in order to decide, you know, if, if you don't care about, for whatever reason, if your interest isn't in the batting average on balls in play, then BABIP isn't useful to you. So it all depends on what it is you want to do. So just to categorically deem it irrelevant or useless is wrong. And to consider it the be-all, end-all, it tells me all I need to know is wrong as well. It, you need to understand what it is it measures, and how to apply that to whatever it is you're trying to do, whether you're projecting or, or, or ranking or wh- whatever it is you're doing with the BABIP, uh, you have to understand the limitations and possibly you know, use two different now use a di- two different methods and combine to get a feel for the home runs that are, that are not included in BABIP. Well, and the flaw that you identify correctly in the piece is that when when we're looking at BABIP as a measure of hit or luck, then home runs not being included really kind of underplay the the amount of luck that the that the hitter is having because the the ball is not considered a ball in play or or a uh, or a hit so it's it seems to wash out but because the numerators and denominators are different sizes, the a real big power hitter a guy who's going to get forty or fifty home runs a year loses those 40 or 50 hits off his numerator and off his denominator, but the loss of the numerator is more impactful, which makes him look less lucky as far as getting hits than he really has been. Right. And I think, 
the classic example. Of the, well, first of all, this year it's even more apropos than other seasons, just because of the increase in home runs. You know, a lot of former fly balls, because the balls traveling anywhere between five and ten extra feet. You know, balls that were nestled in gloves or maybe hit the wall are now clearing the fence more so than before. So if you want to compare a player's numbers this year to previous seasons, and the, the player I want to, I'd like to look at in this case is Derek Dietrich because of the manner in which his, his home runs have spiked so much, and his batting average of balls in play is so low that I've heard a lot of people contend that, man, you know, get this guy. Not only is he hitting for power, his batting average is going to go up. Now, we talked a little about this last week in exit velocity, why I don't think it's the case, but it just turns out he's a a, a good example to use for this case, too, in that the, the home runs that are this year clearing the fence and last year did not is part of the reason why last year's batting average in balls in play for for Dietrich, Derek Dietrich, was so much which was so much greater. So maybe he's a little unlucky with a bat up this year, but when it does regress it's not going to regress to previous levels i think is the the main the talking point or the main the the the, the take-home lesson there's another stat that's gaining a lot of ground especially among daily fantasy players which is weighted on base average you'll hear it referred to as woba uh, an actual acronym and not an abbreviation well an abbreviation and an acronym i suppose and it has as you said become something of a catch-all to describe a player's fantasy potential and it is very useful but it has some limitations what are those limitations yeah again it's it's some people don't like it they, they just category dismiss it as something they want to use because of limitations as opposed to understanding limitations and applying it accordingly and for strict fantasy purposes one of the limitations of woba is it doesn't capture stolen base potential for fantasy, you know five by five rankings the the idea being woba correlates better with i don't know call it a fantasy dollar value than than ops or slugging or whatever it it, it, score, it correlates best with the fantasy value whoever you want to whatever unit you want to use to measure fantasy value so but the probably you know where it falls short is with stolen bases so it just you have to keep in mind when we're talking about a player's woba and you know, if you're needing one number to look at to see who I want to pick up, and you look at their WOBA, well, check to see who it is, and if it's Delano De Shields or someone like that, you have to understand that their stolen base potential isn't captured within the WOBA. So that that's one shortcoming, and I think people understand that, especially for daily, they understand that steals count because you know it's not five by five, but DFS it steals. You get points for steals, and depending upon the site, etc., uh, the 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 impact varies. But that's one. And then, then in a more general sense, woba is not park corrected. Well, you know, neither is batting average, and we don't complain about that. But it depends on you know we're not using batting average to try to decide what pitchers to use or what hitters to use on a daily basis or on a you know biweekly basis or whatever. So you have to just understand that the you know woba a, a woba for a hitter. In Colorado is different than a WOBA for a hitter in San Francisco because of the park influence. So if I'm using the player at home, I want the Colorado the same you know same 350 WOBA at home. I want the Colorado guy, and on the road I want the San Francisco guy because the the their home road splits for the WOBA you know favor the Colorado guy at home and San Francisco guy on the road. I mean that that's probably intuitive, 
but still, it's something just to keep in mind that Woba is not is not part corrected. I think it's more so. I think you know we we, we kind of know that for hitters, but uh, you know I think well, I I don't use Woba a lot for hitters. There's other things I like, but I do I use I will use Woba against for pitchers. And again, we have to keep in mind that that's not part corrected. So a a pitcher with a Woba against in Petco Park is different than a Woba against in Arlington or a more offensive park. Some misunderstandings about ground ball rate as well. Uh, it's often referred to as a skill, uh, meaning the more ground balls, the better. But there are limitations on that interpretation. Uh, and we've talked about those in the past as well. Uh, more hits for ground balls, more extra base hits for fly balls. And pitchers who tilt one way or the other have those things you have to keep in mind. And again, there are park factors. There's a lot to, to go into thinking about ground ball rate, especially for pitchers. Yeah, and you mentioned you mentioned wise guy Gene earlier. He, I think, he was one of the first to uh, to pound the pet, to pound the pound the gavel that high fl- that fly ball pitchers aren't bad, especially at the extremes. You know, you you take a a fly ball pitcher in, a, in an expansive outfield with good defense. I mean, let let's call them the Minnesota Twins, and the that's a good thing uh, when you get Buxton, Byron Buxton, and Max Kepler, and and uh, and, and and Eddie Rosario good defenders chasing down fly balls in target field, which is a pretty big outfield. You, you want that. And it's not that you don't want him to hit ground balls or induce ground balls, but you, you know, maybe when you got Miguel Sano at third base and you may, maybe you prefer to hit a ball in the air, you give him a couple more homers, but you give up fewer, fewer base hits and the double plays you get from inducing ground balls. Don't quite even it out. So it, it, it is all contextual. The, the point being, yeah, I mean, I think we, we, you know, he has a career best 55% ground ball rate. Well, if you're talking about a sinker ball, you know, a, a sidewinding sinker baller who needs ground balls to get by, that that is his career best. But it might, for other pitchers, that might not be a career best. It depends upon the other, the other stats. So I just prefer to think of it as a trait that I weave in, that I weave in with the other factors, as you mentioned, defense and park and et cetera. Uh, so in my mind, I don't like to call ground ball rate a skill. I think it's a, a pitcher's characteristic to be considered in context with some other factors. Everybody loves exit velocity. Uh, you see it now all the time. It's one of the few advanced stats from StatsCast that uh, baseball announcers on TV have have wholeheartedly embraced. And I think it's because miles per hour is something that's easy to understand. A 100-mile-an-hour right. hit ball is, is more exciting than a 90-mile-an-hour and so on down the line. And, and it, you don't have to do a lot of explaining and those kinds of things. But still, the idea that exit velocity is, is any kind of tell-all is overstated again, especially when it comes to, and we've talked about this in the past, when what's reported is averages. Because uh, even though the average is usually shaped a bell-shaped curve and you're getting a pretty decent idea what what the performance is, there's still a lot of variation within the average. And one of the guys, uh, well, talk about that first, the idea that there's an average exit velocity that is a useful metric. Yeah, exactly. And we actually, this is the the focus of last week's discussion that we had, was I really delved into exit velocity, and then we can uh, reiterate some of the stuff we talked about last week. But yeah, that that's actually, you know, on 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 the TV, when someone hits a home run, you hits 108 miles per hour off the bat, that's fine. And then, you know, because they're talking about exit velocity, they'll give a list of 
the, the players with the with the highest average exit velocities, but now again it's average. And the, the exit velocity of a ground ball is less than that of a, of a fly ball on the average, which is less than that of a line drive. I think it's kind of interesting that uh, the exit velocity of a ground ball is lower than that of a fly ball because you think of they're both they're both miss hit so you know shouldn't their exit velocity you know one's above the ball one's below the ball but because of the, the swing plane is closer to matching the trajectory of a pitch for a fly ball more energy is transferred on a fly ball so even so you haven't hit the ball squarely there's still a, a higher exit velocity which you know now makes more sense to me thinking about that from an old you know physics you know 303 class in high school or college or whatever it makes a lot more sense at that point but the point being um depending upon a player's hit distribution their hit their their average you can't just rank you can't just correlate exit velocity to expected hit rate because it matter the, the hit distribution matters and so does defense and stuff like that. I, I've yeah. seen I've seen players who, for instance, hit the ball very hard, but they're being shifted a lot or aggressively, yep. and they're just wailing balls at at ninety five miles an hour. But they're right at somebody because the defense is just lined up that way, and it doesn't turn into a hit. So there, are, I, I think that the idea is that of two hitters if one of them has a 92 mile an hour average exit velocity and the other guy's at 82 i want the 92 mile an hour guy right you know i and i don't yeah. think that's that's uh, very controversial to say i think the problem is as you suggest in the piece that when we start assuming that exit velocity will result in some kind of outcome is where we come a, a little bit a cropper right because we're completely neglecting to mention launch angle in that TV will mention the launch angle often on the home runs, but they don't, you know, they just mention it as, as a fact as opposed to an, an analysis and the whatnot. So that's, that's important. And whether, how controllable a hitter's launch angle is, is still up for discussion. The, uh, the early indications are that a player owns his exit velocity sooner than he owns his launch angle. Uh, which which makes which makes a little bit makes makes I, well I don't know if it makes sense or not I just I, I suppose that's the way it, I, to me it does make sense just because and I think Ron Chandler wrote about this uh, this week either for the Athletic or his own site I think it was on the Athletic it's just the 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 game of in, it's not a game it's it's not even a game of inches it's a game of millimeters where you actually hit the ball so to to, to to describe a, you know, a ground ball from a fly ball from a line drive, actually what Ron did, maybe you can talk about it with him at some point, he's grouping all balls in the air together and not separating them just because can a batter really control if he hits it at a 15-degree angle or hits it at a 20-degree angle? One of them is classified as a line drive. The other is classified as a fly ball. Why don't we just put them all in the same basket? And that's 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 sort of, you know again, part of what, what the what the I don't know, fallacy or shortcoming of just looking at average exit velocity because it does combine all those hits into one. This is a bit off the topic of what you covered in the piece, but when it comes to launch angles and describing them as line drives or grounders or whatever it turns out to be, um, I think that I think it's a pretty reasonable assumption to make that certain launch angles should be classified as line drives, and the reason I think so is. I believe that what they did was they worked backwards. They saw a lot of line drives and they said, okay, of the ones that we just consider to be line drives based on what we saw, 
what was the launch angle range that they that they seem to have recorded and that we're going to assume that since 95% of the line drives we saw fall in this range of you know 20 degrees to 31 degrees or whatever it is that that's what we're going to just call a line drive for simplicity's sake, allowing for the fact that every so often somebody's going to score a 20% contact rate and it's going to end up being a pop fly or it's going to actually end up on the ground because they didn't hit it hard enough and it kind of line drives its way out to, you know, halfway between the mound and second and hits the ground and becomes a grounder. There's always going to be these kind of classification issues no matter how you slice it, and that's why I actually really prefer the kind of classification that's done by human observers where there's three or four people in the park and they score it. I thought it was a line drive, and then they find out later what the launch angle was. Right. Not only that, um, to sort of, well, I, I think I think still it's a work in progress. I'm not sure they've landed on what will ultimately be the final determination. Uh, taking a look at data over the past few seasons, there's, there's, there's jumps in, in global line drive, fly ball infield line drive, outfield line drive, and maybe the, 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 the elevated swing is affecting that, but I also think it's classification, fine-tuning the numbers and the gathering of the numbers, and that I'm not 100% positive. Maybe they are now, but from 13, 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, some of the, the distributions, the average distributions year to year changed. So, and as we've talked about too, right now you know Statcast is the uh, is whatever you know the 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 golden the golden child as it were. There's still multiple sources of of data on the web. It's not all Statcast. So if you're looking at general line drive, fly ball, ground ball data, that as long as you keep it consistent, your studies with that source, it, the study is is okay. Just don't 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 mix up. Don't get ground ball from this place and line drive from that place and combine them because you could be double dipping into the same bit, the same hit being classified two different ways. And finally, uh, Todd, you talk about spin rate and the, the example you use, Hyun Jin Ryu, who doesn't rank particularly high in terms of average spin rate, but that doesn't mean he's not being effective. And this has to do with, you said, certain pitches have naturally higher spin rates, curves and sliders versus low spin rates of change-ups and splitters and the repertoire matters. Yeah, a couple things here. Um, yeah, I wrote I wrote about maybe we'll talk about it next week, maybe not. We'll see. I wrote about spin rate in depth on Rotowire this week, and uh, looking at it the same way, and we see average spin rate, but different pitches have different spins. Curveballs, sliders have a higher spin rate than sinker than sorry than uh, uh, changeups and splitters to, to as the two extremes. And not only that, and you know to, to get a little bit in depth. Um, on fastball spin rate, the uh, the fastball spin rate, what it does is it it forms a cushion underneath the ball, and what it it, 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 it works against gravity. So a fastball spinning with 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 backspin, it doesn't drop as much the the faster the spin. People equate spin with movement. With a fastball, it's actually less movement. Now our brains are trained after seeing so many pitches over so many years they just they just they think they know the synapses and neurons think they know where the ball's going to end up it's coming at a downward trajectory naturally because the pitcher's on a mound and he's tall etc uh but 
the gravity is working against the ball, so the ball just thinks it knows where it's going to drop. What makes a fastball pitcher so effective is the ball doesn't drop as much as an average fastball, a, fa- a fastball spinning more, a Justin Verlander fastball doesn't drop as much. You know, some people that's a bad thing. It's not moving as much, but the brain thinks it's going to drop more. And a batter hits underneath it, hits a fly ball, makes weak contact, etc. So that's it, it's kind of weird that the intuition that spin makes the break for a fastball, it actually the, the more spin prevents the break. So one of the things with Ryu, he doesn't generate a lot of spin on his fastball. The opposite could be true, in that his fastball could actually drop more than the brain thinks, and that could be why his fastball is effective. But the other thing being, he throws a lot of change-ups, which have the lowest, or one of the lowest spin rates. You want you know, you want the fade, you want the drop on the change, you want to, the better to think it's a fastball because of the motion, etc., but then it just falls off the plate, it just falls, it just falls, and he throws a lot of change-ups, and he, he, his, his change-up spin is well below league average, which is good, in this case, you want it to be below, and the interesting part with Ryu, I didn't talk about in the ESPN piece, I didn't break it down until this week with the Rotowire piece, his curveball spin is above average, so it's not as if he's incapable of putting spin on the ball. He's just developed his own arsenal, his own repertoire, and and made each pitch most effective based on his motion, his release, etc. So, you know, you can't go to a, a, a chart and look at spin and look at him, Jin Ryu and say, man, he's not spinning the ball. He's going to regress. <laughs> that's not a that's not a proper statement. You need to look at the pitches, what 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 he is spinning, what he isn't, and whether it's good or bad, what he is spinning and what he isn't. And the other thing, and I I don't know if I mentioned this, I think I alluded to it in the SPN pieces. Spin's only part of the part of the equation. Just because a pitcher has a high spin, is the control or command of the pitches, where he's putting it, the sequencing, the count, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, the motion, how well he hides the ball, all that sort of thing. So you know, spin in a vacuum, it's it's fun. It's a it's, well, it's more than fun. It's telling. It's a leading metric, but again, it, like everything else, it needs to be kept in context with so many other things. Yeah, and the other thing about it is that uh, not all the spin is just forward and backwards either. I mean, some of the pitches tumble forward. Some of them, as you mentioned, a four-seam fastball is, in a perfect world, would be 180 degrees dead backwards, and and that would create that cushion. But inevitably, there's going to be some amount of side spin, which is going to create sideways movement as well. And uh, and, uh, you have to look at both axes. You can't just say, I just want to look at backspin versus forespin or topspin. I want to look at sidespin as well because a guy who's getting a good amount of sidespin on it is going to get horizontal movement, which can be really helpful as well. We could go on and on (laughs) talking about this all day, Todd, and I imagine by this time some of the listeners are worried we just might. So we'll call it uh, quits there, and I'll catch up with you again next week. Already looking forward to it, Petey. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, pitcher matchups, and master notes, all next on Baseball HQ Radio. First of all, I want you to know that this honor that was brought upon me here could not have happened without the great work and the advice and guidance that I've had from three of the most wonderful people that I know. And if either of them weren't here today, I know that this day could not be complete. But they're all here, and I, I just hope you don't mind if I just play a, a word of thanks and a, a tribute to my 
advisor and a wonderful friend, a man who I considered a father, Mr. Branch Rickey. And my mother, who taught me so much of the important things early in life, I appreciate no end. My mother, Mrs. Robinson. And, and, and lastly, ladies and gentlemen, my wife, who has been such a wonderful inspiration to me and the person who has guided and advised me throughout our entire marriage. I, I couldn't have been here today without her help. And then I... And sitting down, I must thank the baseball writers. I never thought at all that I would have this wonderful honor coming to me so early in my lifetime. And to have the writers to elect me on the first time is a thrill that I shall never forget. We have been up in cloud nine since the election. I don't ever think I'll come down. But I want to thank all of the people throughout this country who were just so wonderful during those trying days. I appreciate it no end. It's the greatest honor any person could have. And I only hope that I'll be able to live up to this tremendously fine honor. It's, it's something that I think those of us who are fortunate again must use in order to help others because it's such a tremendous honor that we should be able to go out and do things to help. I'm just grateful and I'm sorry it's taking so long, but I just wanted you to do it. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the weekend pitcher matchups report and master notes. And leading us off, it's our frequent flyer commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Cleveland first baseman Bobby Bradley, and here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. His carrying tool is the log ball, according to Baseball HQ's 2019 baseball forecaster, And let's face it, 23-year-old Cleveland first baseman Bobby Bradley certainly hasn't disappointed in carrying the long ball a long, long way in 2019 to the tune of 18 home runs already at AAA. That's good enough to lead the International League in home runs through his first 59 games. That's good enough to earn International League Player of the Month honors for May. Perhaps that's also good enough to force the Cleveland Indians to consider making a move at first base. While Carlos Santana's 286 batting average and 14 home runs remains a lock at first base and designated hitter, Cleveland's Jake Bowers is struggling, batting 194 with only two home runs through 28 games in May. In fact, Jake Bowers is batting a paltry 209 and 211 at-bats in 2019 with seven home runs, giving him a scant 204 career batting average at the major league level through 159 games after his call-up last June, June 7, 2018 to be exact. However, Jake Bowers, like Bobby Bradley, is only 23 years old and will need time to make adjustments at the major league level, just like Bobby Bradley. That's why Bobby Bradley, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league, and he probably is. Still, having a long shot who can hit the long ball rostered is not always a bad thing. 
Consider this. After being drafted in the third round by Cleveland in 2014, Bobby Bradley tied for ninth among all minor league players in home runs in 2015, his first full professional season. Not bad. Since then, Bobby Bradley has averaged 27 home runs per season no matter what level he's played in the minor leagues. That's consistency. Yet despite a respectable 282, 345, 595 slash line at AAA Columbus in 2019, Bobby Bradley remains a strikeout risk. Most power hitters are. A closer look shows somewhat of an all-or-nothing approach, not uncommon among sluggers, that yields a contact rate of only 74% in 2019. Remember, we at BaseballHQ.com consider contact rates lower than 70% to be among the hackers of society. And actually, Bobby Bradley's 74% contact rate in 2019 represents an improvement over his 68% minor league career contact rate. It is a decent improvement thus far, but we still recommend a cautious approach. Even so, a long shot who can hit the long ball is worth rostering as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for weekend pitcher matchups, where we look at some of the notable games this weekend, including a marquee matchup, the Cubs right-hander Yu Darvish in Los Angeles to take on Dodgers right-handed ace Walker Bueller on Sunday. And here with the lowdowns on the showdowns is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Seven starters have extremely strong matchup ratings this weekend, topped by Chris Sale's 350 in Baltimore's Camden Yards. Of those seven best matchup ratings, our marquee matchups are the only two in which the opposing starter also has a positive matchup rating. Bueller goes up against Yu Darvish, who has a matchup rating of 018. Morton faces Jose Suarez, who has a matchup rating of 015. Let's take a look at both of those as our marquee matchups. 24-year-old right-hander Walker Bueller started the season with two PQS disasters, then threw another in his fifth start, making three PQS disasters in his first five starts. In his eight starts since then, he's had five PQS dominance and three PQS decents. Bueller's weekly BPVs from the final week of April on range from 155 to 247. His season-long BPV is now up to 145, four points better than his 2018 season total. Bueller has improved his command ratio from 4.1 strikeouts per walk last season to 6.0 strikeouts per walk this year, and he's earning his owners a buck more this season. In short, Bueller is just plain getting better. 32-year-old right-hander Yu Darvish also started the season sluggishly after fall arthroscopic debridement surgery on his pitching elbow. In his first seven starts, Darvish had four PQS disasters, and his average PQS score was 1.3. In his next seven starts, Darvish had one PQS disaster, one PQS dominant, and five PQS decents, averaging a PQS score of 2.7. Darvish just got his ERA under 5 and his whip under 1.5. Both his control rate of 5.5 walks per 9 and his dominance rate of 10.1 strikeouts per 9 are career worsts, as is his command ratio of 1.8 strikeouts per walk. Darvish definitely dug himself a deep hole in his first eight starts, during which he averaged more than four walks per game and had six games with more than three walks each. But in his past six starts, Darvish has averaged fewer than two walks per game, had two games without a walk, and none with more than three walks. 
The bottom line, though, is that even if Darvish is getting better too, he's still not likely to outpitch Bueller this Saturday. 35-year-old right-hander Charlie Morton has sailed through his first 14 starts this season. His lone blemish is a PQS disaster at Yankee Stadium May 19. To more than offset that, Morton has eight PQS dominance, including his past four consecutive starts. The Morton machine is humming along with a career-best ERA and second-best expected ERA and career-bests in whip, dominance, swinging strike rate, command ratio, BPV, and roto earnings. He'll face 21-year-old Angels left-hander Jose Suarez. Suarez is making just his third major league start and first against a team other than the Seattle Mariners. The stocky Suarez earned a 7B prospect rating in the BaseballHQ.com minor league baseball analyst, meaning we gave him a 70% probability of reaching his potential as a number four starter. With Suarez heading into just his 10th inning of major league competition, while Morton makes his 231st major league start, looking for his fifth consecutive PQS dom, my money's on Morton. Two matchups have matchup rating differentials over four this weekend, and the batting beneficiaries are the two visiting teams, the Cleveland Indians and the New York Yankees. The Tribe's 24-year-old right-hander Shane Bieber should get plenty of run support from his teammates as they head into Comerica Park to face the Detroit Tigers' 28-year-old right-hander Buck Farmer. Farmer has a matchup rating of minus 162, while Bieber's is 251. That's a matchup rating differential of 413 in favor of Bieber and the Indians on Saturday. On Sunday in the south side of Chicago, the White Sox send out Odrisomer Despagne with a matchup rating of minus 215. He'll face the Yankees' Masahiro Tanaka, who has a matchup rating of 209. That's a matchup rating differential of 424 in favor of Tanaka and the New Yorkers. So look for some Bronx Bombers bombs, even though Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton aren't likely to be back in their lineup until later next week. And while we're talking about negative matchup ratings against which to load your lineups, the Yanks will get a double dip in that pool this weekend. The White Sox Saturday starter, Ronaldo Lopez, has a matchup rating of minus 126. And that's not all for New York fans. The Mets are at home against St. Louis, and they get Michael Waka and his minus 063 on Saturday, plus Dakota Hudson and his minus 056 on Sunday. In Houston, the Astros get Toronto's Trent Thornton and Clayton Richard, who have matchup ratings of minus 062 and minus 180, respectively. To recap, stack your lineups with Yankees, Mets, and Astros if you can. Don't take a day off from Walker Bueller. Consider Hugh Darvish. Capitalize on the mismatches favoring Shane Bieber and Masahiro Tanaka. Be faithful to old Charlie Morton. And use the BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups tool to pick your pitchers. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his weekend pitcher matchups report here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I want to talk about why I fabbed Daniel Norris. Yeah, I fabbed Daniel Norris this past weekend. Indeed, that Daniel Norris, whose main claim to baseball fame thus far has been that he chose to live in his van. Yes, that Daniel Norris, the Detroit starter with a year-to-date 460 ERA and 145 whip, an average fastball velocity barely 91 miles an hour, and 5x5 year-to-date value under $0. And yes, that Daniel Norris, who has enjoyed such high praise from Baseball HQ analysts, like the 2019 baseball forecaster. Take his small sample BPV growth with a grain of salt. Velocity drop adds some concern, especially when combined with a ground ball loss and poor control. 
His disaster-heavy baseline says he'll do you more harm than good, so let someone else take the plunge. Well, I took the plunge, which might make you wonder why I get to write the column called Master Notes. But hear me out. It might not be totally masterful, and it could take the E out of Noteworthy. In fact, it could just be a tire fire. But still, I think this could work, and I have three reasons. The first consideration is my league context. I made this move on my Tout Wars team, which regular readers know is an AL only. I'm not strong in the pitch and counting stats right now after losing a few of my drafted starters to injury, like Matt Shoemaker, as well as general suckitude, like Ivan Nova and Irvin Santana. So I was looking for a starter. I thought that if I could get six strikeouts a week, I'd be likelier to get them from a starter than any available reliever. And in this league, it's tough to trade for a starter. One of my fellow touts offered Chris Sale, but I'm pretty sure I can't offer what it would take to get him without losing as much in hitting as I might gain in pitching. So to the free agent pool I went, and in a wry comment on the quality of free agent pools in only leagues, Daniel Norris was at the top of the list. The second reason is that Norris has at least a bit of a pedigree. He was a second-round draft pick in 2011, and at one point was rated as a 9C prospect by the analysts at BaseballHQ.com. That 9C rating means the HQ scouts thought Norris had elite player potential, with a 50-50 chance of achieving that level. He's had more than 340 big league innings, but he's still only 26 years old, just coming into his physical prime. And he's left-handed. That's not nothing. The third, and by far the most important reason, is that Daniel Norris pitches in the American League Central. That means he figures to pitch more than half his remaining starts against teams with really poor offenses. I actually plotted out the Detroit rotation for the entire rest of the year, assuming the team will try to get its ace, Matt Boyd, pitching exactly every five days, followed by Norris, then by whoever ends up replacing Ryan Carpenter and someone better, and then Spencer Turnbull, with a fifth-starter swingman type like Buck Farmer taking up the fifth-starter role. If the rest of season schedule works out as I plotted it, Norris will have 21 more starts, with 11 of them coming against weak opponents. Now keep in mind the league average OPS is around 747. Here are the weaklings coming up on Norris's docket. He has three starts each against Cleveland with a 695 team OPS and the White Sox at 709. He has two starts against Kansas City. They're a 715 OPS and one of those games took place this week. There's an interleague start next week against Pittsburgh. They're at 721. And he has one start each against Oakland and Philadelphia. They're both right at league average at 747. Now, before I made my winning $2 bid, Norris had eight starts against below-average OPS teams. In those games, he went 365 for an ERA with a 138 whip. He had a dominance ratio of seven strikeouts per nine, a control rate of 2.9 walks per nine. That gave him a command ratio of 2.4 strikeouts per walks and a home run per nine of 1.2. In the five starts immediately before my bid, three were against weak sisters, Kansas City, Baltimore, and Miami. And in those, Norris went 324-138 with 5.3 Ks and 1.6 walks per start. In HQ metrics, he had a DOM of 8.6, control of 2.7, and a command of 3.2. Those are good numbers, certainly good enough for me to spike a couple of fab bucks as a spec bet. Now against good teams, I will acknowledge Norris has been bad. 491 ERA, a 136 whip, 
2.5 home runs per nine and just a 6.8 dominance. And Norris does also have some starts coming up this season against stronger offenses, including two each against Minnesota and Texas, and one each against Washington, Boston, the Angels, Seattle, Tampa, and the Yankees. But those starts don't matter because Norris ain't going to get a glimpse of those teams while he's on my roster. I'm going to very aggressively stream him out of any starts against tough opponents. And by the way, I noticed that almost all of Norris's tough starts happen to fall in two start weeks, both starts against tough teams. So I'm not going to face two start weeks where one starts a dream and the other one's a potential nightmare. Now, Detroit as a team also faces weaklings Baltimore and Toronto with their 700 and 660 OPSs respectively, but regrettably Norris is not in line to face them. He also misses Houston and their 817 OPS, which is A-OK with me. Now, I know this tactic has a lot of risk. For one thing, just a rain out here or there, and Norris's path could lose easy starts and gain tough ones. The anemic Detroit bats mean wins will be in short supply, even if Norris pitches like Mickey Lolich. As well, the rebuilding Tigers might be looking at some other options in their rotation. See what they've got. Kick the tires a little bit. And that could mean Norris being bullpenned or even benched, especially if he continues to be, well, mediocre. Injured starter Jordan Zimmerman is expected back in mid-June. Tyson Ross should be back around the All-Star break. The team also has possibilities in the minors and their bullpen. But I don't think Detroit's going to rush up their top prospects in the latest of several rebuilding years. They have no reason to start the service clocks of Casey Mize or Matt Manning, and Bo Burrows and Franklin Perez are nowhere near ready to make the jump. If Detroit does decide to make a rotation change, I think Norris still has a decent chance to stick. I'm sure the first to go is going to be Carpenter, a journeyman who's thrown into the breach because of the rotation injuries and has provided a 789 ERA, 156 whip, with just 19 strikeouts in almost 30 innings. I mentioned Buck Farmer. I think he profiles as that swingman spot starter that he's been doing this season, and there are persistent rumors that Boyd might be on the trading block. Even if he keeps his role, I understand Norris is going to be a risky proposition. According to online reports, he was picked up in Week 10 in only about 30% of mixed leagues, so there's a little wisdom of the crowds at play here. I just hope he turns out to be, well, a little bit masterful, and maybe even notesworthy. And here's a postscript. In his first game on my roster, Norris faced the Royals in Kansas City. He got through five innings, gave up two earned runs. That's a 360 ERA for that start. He struck out six and walked two. Of course he didn't get the win, as Detroit's own offense mustered only two runs, and Norris left the game tied. But on balance, I'll take this start for two bucks. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Masternotes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Masternotes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, you can listen to Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 14th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 26 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, the wise guy, Gene McCaffrey, fantasy baseball columnist at The Athletic. Gene's a tremendous baseball analyst and writer, and he's a really good friend of mine personally and, of course, of the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. 
Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky, and our weekend pitcher matchups commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick David, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed, and please do, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Please take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast or iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, and if they have the feature, you could leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That really does help us find new listeners, and that in turn helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. And so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.